We are recording, I believe. Um, I am Gwart. I am here with Eric Wall. This is my first ever podcast, so we're going to do this very live. Um, we are recording on January 10th, the morning after we got faked out by Gary Gensler. But hopefully this afternoon we're getting an ETF. Eric, where were you? What were you doing, rather, <laughs> when the ETF was falsely announced? Yeah, you know, I deleted that tweet. I've uh, I've actually gone and deleted the tweet. Um, and it's not so much that I didn't think it was funny. Like I was literally on the toilet um, <laughs> when when this happened, and I took a picture like of my legs, obviously sitting in a toilet position. And then like five minutes later, Gary Gensler tweets that uh, they, the SEC got hacked. Um, and I wanted to leave the tweet up because I thought it was a, like uh, a hilarious, um, you know, time, you know, moment in time, a snapshot out of time, like something funny that happened. But I something else happened that day that I wasn't prepared for, which was that, uh, oh, fuck, I'm going <clears> to <throat> I'm going to I'm going to say something about hex and richard hart which i always do every single podcast uh but we're going to keep it brief anyway so richard hart has teamed up with um like a very reputable law firm called quinn that uh i think elon musk has used in the past to um defend him basically in the trial that he has uh where he's getting accused for misappropriation of funds um so he's lawyered up like quite significantly and is making a big like brag moment out of fighting the sec and i don't want to have like two two tweets where the hexagons are like comparing this is richard uh teaming up with a reputable a reputable law firm fighting the sec and this is you literally with your pants down celebrating the uh, the sec approving the etf <laughs> just like i i can't live with that so um uh, yeah, I had to delete it, and I hope no one finds the <laughs> the pictures. I screenshotted it, but out of respect, <laughs> I will not share. Um, well, you can you can inscribe it as an ordinal. Maybe it'll sell for something. <laughs> that would almost certainly sell. Or actually, I have no idea. I have no idea if that would sell. I feel like the uh, tweets don't do so well. I was informed, inscribed, or at least like when they were made into NFTs. Didn't somebody buy uh, a tweet for like a million dollars? Wasn't it Jack Dorsey's tweet? And I don't know. That's probably very close to worthless now. So by the way, I, think, I don't know. I think, I think we're 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 getting ahead of ourselves. So um, you, <laughs> this is a, this is a new medium for you. This is the first time. This is uh, yeah, that's correct. I, no, no one's gonna see your face, but this is the first time that they're hearing your voice. And I feel like maybe I should interview you for for a bit before. <laughs> We get stuck. Maybe I mean I think maybe you know I've been on you know, like podcasts and crypto since since there have been podcasts and crypto, and you haven't you have not, and I don't think I don't think that people even are going to recognize your voice. Um, yeah, that's true. They won't. So um, why don't like? I think people are more curious about like. Who the fuck are you and how come, you know, can I, can I give my analysis of the sort of the Gwar yes, phenomenon? you certainly may. You certainly may. Okay. And I will dispute it. But go ahead. Is it okay if I uh, insult you at the very essence of your soul? Of course. Okay. <laughs> you, you pause for a moment. So that's how 
I'm, I'm thinking maybe I should. No, no, I expected or... nothing less. <laughs> okay, so you know, I have lost a, a couple of friends. Uh, you know, they say they they, t- they tell me that um, you know I had this one friend, and we were sort of climbing. This was way back, um, uh, and we were sort of climbing the social ranks of the uh, the underground rave scene of southern Sweden together. And then he just like cut me off, and he wouldn't hang out with me anymore. And then many years later, after I became a big deal in crypto, he started reaching out to me again. I was like, but why did you like? cut me out uh back then when we were like going to Berghain and you know we, we were on a mission and he said well eric you always got to find that spot in people like the the, the their weak point and then you just got to go and shove your finger uh in that in that hole um and so you know you know i have a tendency mm-hmm. to you know touch people where they uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> I make I go make ahead, people go ahead, spit it out. Okay. <laughs> so okay, so so here here's the Gord phenomenon. Okay, so the Gord phenomenon is basically that you have this anon uh, Twitter character that is making all these references, like all these references about you know uh, different people in the crypto space and specific protocols that they're working on different issues in crypto that are people are trying to solve like it seems like someone who's in the know but not just in the know of like what technical challenges the industry faces but also in the know of which different people are sort of championing each different you know technology narrative and also sort of is able to to identify the awkwardness and you know some socially you know comedic uh, situations between those people. So it's um, th- the reason that that became popular is not because you know because ever everyone started saying like Gort is the funniest account on Twitter, <laughs> but you know that was not actually what was happening. I'm not saying that you're not funny. Perfect, you know, you are perfectly uh, funny. Like one of the funnier <laughs> Twitter accounts, but. What happened was that people wanted to show, like it became like if you thought that Gwart was funny, it meant that you had all the necessary context in order to get that joke. So it became like, you know, I um, I think Gwart is funny. And then, you know, the next guy's like, well, you know, I, I understand Gwart humor too. I also think it's funny. And then, you know, everyone just started like uh, piling on to being a Gort stan, and that's that that's sort of how the thing came to be. So, you know, um they're using you as like a signal to boost themselves more than they're actually complimenting you. Okay, this was not nearly as offensive as I thought it would be. Is that is that okay, it? Well, that, that was <laughs> it. That was it. <laughs> um well this this is like quite a generous interpretation of what I do. I mean yes, I, I would consider myself to be deeply unserious on Twitter. I think to the extent that I have done anything outside of the box, it's that a lot of what I saw in terms of the criticism or trolling on Twitter was focused on very easy targets in a sense. Like and and not to put not to put you on blast here, but like for example, Richard Hart is a very easy target, right? Now, I think you really deeply embedded yourself <laughs> in that one, right? But I, I think, you know, it's not hard to make jokes or to chastise FTX. It's not hard to go after 
uh, SBF and Luna and Terra. And these are things that what I saw, and maybe this is, maybe I'm being a bit generous to myself here, but what I saw was oftentimes in the industry, I felt like we would position ourselves such that we would point to Do Kwan and say, this is an example of a bad actor. And what we're doing over here is the good actor, right? Or And, and our in-group, we're the ones building. We're the ones innovating. And these people sort of got almost... Um, and, you know, like, for what it's worth, you have to understand, I'm not, like, deeply critical, right? Like, this, is, this stuff doesn't offend me, right? But, but I thought that there was sort of this, uh, almost these, like, sacred cows where people wouldn't really question the, the first principles thinkers, you know? And, the, like, you know, you can go after FTX, but, like, don't you dare go after a mechanism designer. And so I, I'm sort of somewhere in the middle where it's kind of like, I find it's funnier to troll about the people who are very, very serious, right? And I'm not very serious. So I think, I don't know if that provides any context. I mean, I think your read is sort of spot on. It's ironic because most of the people who probably find my humor, uh, I don't know, edgy or satirical, they're all like much more technical than I am. But I've been able to find sort of what you're talking about, those, those I don't know, maybe those little, those little nuances to, to what they do or what they say. So... Um, yeah, I, I was not at all offended by what you said to offend me. So if that's the worst that that I get, I mean, this is not bad at all. Okay, well, I was, I was just, um, you know, briefing you. I don't know how easily insulted you are. Uh, but I think, like, from a historical context, the character makes sense because um, if we zoom out, like, maybe this is not true anymore, uh, but there was, like, some months after the FTX collapse, where we had these, you know, Sequoia paradigm. Um, what's that one in in uh, uh, the, the the Singaporean uh, the Singaporean fund that invested also in FTX? Um, oh, so Temasek. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Temasek, yeah, yeah, exactly. So you have these like massive behemoths and like pillars of the industry. And backing, you know, the most legit projects in crypto, and then you know it turns it all turns out to be scam a scam, and then Richard Hart turns out to be the lesser. Like all the, all all you know, all that year I'm chasing after Richard Hart, but I'm missing like <laughs> the, exactly the, big, yes. the biggest scams yes. are right in front of me. So it it from that like historical context, it makes sense that maybe uh, we should have have like jesters jesters. <laughs> questioning even like the most legit actors in the space like so there should be more uh, criticism and scrutiny of what are we doing on the home turf uh so i think like from that historical perspective and lens the gourd character is a much needed one and a much welcome one so um yeah. uh, for that reason i'm happy to um do this first episode with you uh, so that's it's it's yeah, an honor and worked no, it, I, I'm glad you said it's an honor because I was going to say that it must be an honor to be my first guest. <laughs> but um, in all seriousness, I mean, I can't think of somebody better to talk to. I think you have uh, a tremendous amount of knowledge and, and, it, and it goes way back. And that's what I think is, I think that is very good for my first podcast. We'll see if I'm good at podcasting because it will lay the groundwork for what I am hoping to do with this. 
Um, so I can't think of anything better, and I do appreciate you coming on. Um, so to that end, how is Taproot Wizards? What are you working on? What are you trying to do right now? Uh, that's a big one. Um, <laughs> you can break that down. Yeah, so I mean, uh, Taproot Wizards is... Um, Taproot Wizards started actually before ordinals even existed. It was uh, it was an idea uh, that I and Udi Wertheimer, the uh, infamous Mossad agent, um, bald man on Twitter. Uh, it was an idea that basically, you know, the, the there are different flavors of Bitcoiners, but there was was only really one flavor of Bitcoiner that had a very visible footprint in like the crypto space. It would be the laser eyes. And they, you know, said the same things. They made their profile pictures looking the same way and they sort of banded together. And but it's it's not it, it's not sure. And I think it's uh proven now to be uh not true that that is the largest group of people that are Bitcoiners. And there was this excellent uh, presentation by the um, the owner of Bitrefill, uh, where he he was at a Bitcoin conference and he had like a presentation where he went through the statistics of the wallets, the Bitcoin wallets that make purchases on the Bitrefill site. And he asked the, audiences, uh, the audience, what do you guys think is the most popular Bitcoin wallet that buys stuff off of our website? And people were raising their hands and saying like n- names of different wallets that they you know were fans of, and these would be like the 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 most popular Bitcoin wallets in in in, in the Bitcoin space. And it's not it's not that the 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 most famous one like came last or was only mentioned by one or two people. It wasn't mentioned at all, and it wasn't only that it wasn't mentioned. It wasn't even known. <laughs> so the the name of the most famous, the, the most popular wallet that makes Bitcoin transactions uh, is a wallet that's called Exodus. At least if you look at Bitrefill yeah. data. So there's a wallet called uh, Exodus. I think it's it might be a multi-coin wallet, like it, supports yeah, multiple ha- currencies. Wallet, yeah. You have one. Yeah, yeah, it's a desktop okay. wallet, and actually, it's now now it's a browser wallet as well. But I've had an Exodus wallet for a long time. Yeah. Okay. Well, that maybe uh, speaks to um, how much of a weird bird <laughs> or whatever. In, in, well, actually, a normal bird is, is the point, actually. Um, so our, our uh, you know, analysis was basically that there is a group of people that are using Bitcoin and they are Bitcoiners, but they don't necessarily resonate with you know, the laser eyes and... They, it's just that there is no other way to show, like, how do you show that you're that you absolutely love Bitcoin, but you don't like what sort of the laser eyes, the message that the laser eyes are propagating? Like, how do you, how do you get behind the flag of Bitcoin without, you know, saying that you know you 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 you, you eat food in a specific way and you know you have guns and you like you have all, all these weird like specific uh, dietary politics and you know way to be a human that goes way beyond being a bitcoiner um like how how do you signal that you love bitcoin but you don't adhere to maximalism so we we're thinking about like how do we give that group a face and we like thought about the old um the meme that uh, actually the ad on the old bitcoin reddit uh the r bitcoin 
subreddit, which which used to be the home of Bitcoin for a time, for a long time, actually, up until like 2017. Uh, between 2013 and uh, until 2017, that was like the home of Bitcoin or Bitcoin. You would even have like core developers go in there and they, they would have their specific flair. So you would see that that's a core developer in the conversation right now. Um so the the uh, the ad of the uh, Bitcoin subreddit for a time was this picture of a wizard that just it said magic internet money join us and then that ended up becoming not only I think it was the most popular ad for any subreddit on uh, Reddit ever so the Bitcoin subreddit grew massively and lots of new people became Bitcoiners just through that ad uh, and it's you know it was kind of playful joyful, didn't take itself very seriously. It was the age of experimentation. Bitcoin is this magic internet money. Let's like use it. Let's see, see what we can do with it. And, you know, that's like diametrically opposed to what Bitcoin maximalism represents today, where, you know, they're basically saying that Bitcoin is a finished product and, you know, it's already won and it's just you just have to, and 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 a couple of years ago, they were actually just saying that there's a mathematical formula inside the Bitcoin protocol itself that is going to make Bitcoin reach a uh, trillion dollars if you just wait for the um, uh, issuance schedule to keep halve. Then just the math of it just means that the Bitcoin price is going to go to infinity. And there were people doing uh, advanced econometric research on this, proving this to be not just a theory, but a fact. And you have like the largest influencers and podcasters buying into that. Um, so Bitcoin is obviously like not perfect. And even even um, like some of the most beloved and reputable core developers like Gregory Maxwell says that the biggest threat to Bitcoin is that if people at some point uh, think that Bitcoin is finished and complete and doesn't need to change. Uh, if it ossifies pr- prematurely, that is the biggest risk to Bitcoin, according to Greg Maxwell. And now there's a lot of people that are speaking about ossification and they don't even know who Gregory Maxwell is. For those that don't know, listeners who don't know, Gregory Maxwell is like the Dumbledore <laughs> of Bitcoin. Uh, he's like this, um, just been around for such a long time, has this big, big You don't big think Peter Wheel, Peter Wheel is the uh, Dumbledore of, of Bitcoin? No, no, like P- uh, Gregory Maxwell had a... He was um, Peter Peter Willey uh, implemented uh, Taproot, for example, but it was Gregory Maxwell and Andrew Polster that um, invented it. Uh, yeah. So Gregory Maxwell, I think, has been the originator of some like way more powerful ideas. Um, he he's and, a genius, like certifiably. I think. Yeah, I think so for sure. He's one of the smartest men that I've like encountered yeah. on the internet. Um, <laughs> anyway, so we thought that we just want to like give a face. We wanted, we want basically to change the culture of Bitcoin. We think that in order for Bitcoin to for Bitcoin as an asset to excel, thrive, uh, the only way to do it is to change the social layer around Bitcoin. And the only way to change the social layer of Bitcoin, well, the leading theory that that me and this Mossad agent have at the moment is that we have to, so we're going to, like, we've tried every possible thing. We're going to have to try to do something uh, extreme because all the other things that we tried has failed. So the thing that we're doing now is that we're going to try to make 
the Bitcoin maximalists hates Bitcoin so much that they're willing to change it. So uh, we we have to work within with the on the insides of the consensus rules, uh, so that they are going to have to be the ones that start to promote change. Because right now they're the ones saying, you know, Bitcoin is perfect the way it is. It never needs to change. The protocol is perfect, and uh, this is just this is just how it is now. And no mind, no small change. Like nothing is going to make it into Bitcoin. You can always innovate on top of Lightning, and you can make Lightning better and stuff like that. But we're never going to change Bitcoin the way it is. Uh, so how do we how do we break the cracks? You know, there's the there's this quote by Leonard Cohen uh, from a beautiful song where he says, uh, "There is a crack, a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in." So we 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 have to create a crack in that this. Goes pretty hard. Uh, yeah, it does. The, the song's good also. <laughs> um, um, so so we, we basically have to cook them out. You know, we're, we're, so if we, uh, and by the way, I don't want to, I don't want to take credit for like everything that's happening with ordinals. Uh, I've, I've tried like, you know, we, me and Uri didn't initially take credit for the things that were happening with ordinals. Like what happened was that when the ordinals protocol was brand new, uh, there were like a total of like let's say a hundred ordinals that had ever been inscribed. Uh, that's the time when you know we discovered it. Uh, this was late Janu- uh, January. Um, I started tweeting about it, and then at inscription number six hundred and fifty-two, then we uh, joined forces with. Uh, uh, a mining pool called Luxor, and we broadcasted to them a non-standard transaction. So this is a transaction that you cannot, for Ethereum people, this may be you know something that they have to wrap their this heads, is heads around. I thought this is, I mean, this is outside of the mempool, right? Yeah. So this is this this is a, we, we had to broadcast a non-standard. Uh, well, we, okay. we can't. You you can't broadcast non-standard transactions. So non-standard means. The blockchain considers it as valid. The full nodes considers it as valid, but uh, nodes running on the network will not uh, propagate the transaction. They will not include it into their own blocks, and they will not send it other away to other miners. So, like, it won't get into a block unless there's a miner that says, "Fuck, fuck the uh, standardness rules. I'm gonna put this in because it still has consensus validity." So, uh, what we wanted to do the the uh, the rule, the policy rule that we wanted to break was there's a maximum size currently in Bitcoin that's like around uh, 400 kilobytes per uh, transaction. We wanted to get the full four megabyte, uh, a full four megabyte transaction that uh, takes up the space of an entire block and just make that be uh, a JPEG. So we um, worked together with Luxor. We got this. Uh, JPEG filling up a whole block, and that sort of demonstrates that the entirety of the Bitcoin blockchain is—you can basically use it as call data in Ethereum. Like it, it's arbitrary; right. it's an arbitrary storage pool. But, uh, so I think that was the best way, like the high, the highest signal way to get that message through. That entire Bitcoin block can be a JPEG. Um, so we did that, and that uh, that like sort of. Put so much, you know, and it wasn't. I, I, I don't want to even, you know, 
Like even even the marketing wasn't done by us. It was done by the enraged uh, laser eye maxis that hated this so much that they made sure that everyone in crypto uh, saw this event. So like triggering the maxis has been like the um, uh, marketing strategy for Taproot Wizards. And then, uh, you know, they've just hated seeing Bitcoin being used this way. Like they hate JPEGs, they hate NFTs, they hate shit coins. Uh, but the Ordinals protocol, like now, um, it, it allows you to use Bitcoin as an arbitrary data storage. So uh, you can create like any meta layer protocol that you want in there. Uh, this is not something new, by the way. Uh, you, did you know, for example, that USDT, uh, Tether, used to be only on Bitcoin? As yeah, tokens? the Omni layer, right? Yeah. Correct, yeah. Um, so like creating like ERC-like type tokens on top of Bitcoin is not something new. Uh, the Ordinals protocol uh, just made it a lot easier to create uh, protocols that required larger transactions. Before you really try to have, you, you had to sort of fit these transactions in, uh, in like, you, usually you used op returns and you had like 80 bytes that you could put inside a transaction. But now you have basically infinite, you have the full block is up, is up for grabs, right? Within the standardness rules, it's still 400 kilobytes. So we're talking about like orders of magnitudes of uh, available storage for arbitrary data in blocks that was enabled by the SegWit and Taproot upgrades. So the situation in Bitcoin is basically now changed. Um, so what what has happened since then is that you know there's been uh, there's uh, one guy his name is Domo Data he wrote the uh, standard for BRC20 tokens i think Tarun made like an interesting observation that we're so fucking lazy that we can't even come up with our own name for uh, for these token standards so it's oh you know we know, we know that there's ERC20s so let's just call the tokens on bitcoin BRC20s even though it just, like has no <laughs> real i mean it's catchy at the least yeah, like people understand what it is immediately, but it doesn't yeah. really the let the acronym itself like doesn't really Bitcoin request for comment twenty like it doesn't really make any sense like nothing like that exists. <laughs> um, so, I mean, our our plan. So, so what happened? Just because you know we made this four megabyte block and we were, I mean, we were we were the two Bitcoiners that were sort of visible and well known to the Bitcoin community that was sort of promoting this type of activity. Uh, we didn't promote like any specific NFT or any specific, uh, anything specific that you, that you can buy or any particular token. But we were, were sort of promoting the idea that, hey, you know, Bitcoin block space is undervalued. And we have people like um, uh, Peter Todd, who's also one of uh, a very influential core develop developer that has been so worried about like the declining security budget of Bitcoin due to the halvenings. Now, this is what most most people ask me about from the Ethereum side. Like, how can you be serious about Bitcoin uh, when you know that you know it doesn't look like you have enough fee revenue generation? Right. Your 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 chain is not going to be secure. You're going to have to, uh, inf you know, you're going to have to introduce tail emission, and you're going to basically have you, you're going to have to break the 21 million cap. Um, so you know, if we can, so these meta protocols that actually do create demand for the Bitcoin block space can save Bitcoin in the sense that, well, now, now that there's demand for that block space, there's, you know, users paying transaction fees uh, 
now we have a security budget for Bitcoin. So, um, and the so, so I mean, we we were sort of playing around that this whole thing is saving Bitcoin. I think like at its current stage, it's still still quite immature. Like these, uh, the demand for like creating these tokens and auctioning them off sort of comes in volatile spikes. And it's very hard to model your revenue as a miner when the fees are volatile. But the more types of meta layer protocols that are invented, the more we have of this that are sort of idiosyncratic, the, they're gonna, those uh, highs and lows of uh, block space demand are gonna eventually like level out. So we just want more of that until we basically create a sustainable uh, security budget system for Bitcoin. Um, but the, the, the more important goal with this has basically been to like, how can we, how can we make, uh, the laser eyes hate what is happening? Like hate Bitcoin so much that they're going to like betray their ideals of ossification and immutability, uh, and, and actually go towards the direction of changing Bitcoin. And there's also like this mm. governance stalemate inside the Bitcoin protocol where, the the developers, the core developers that used to uh, introduce consensus changes, like Peter Willey, like um, you know Gregory Maxwell and Andrew Polstra, um, they uh, have you know, sort of retired in a way. Like uh, Peter Willey recently gave up his commit ex- commit access to the uh, Bitcoin Core GitHub repo, um, and Gregory Maxwell is like not even. You know, doesn't even participate much. So like the elders have sort of left the room and you have these sort of more nervous um, people at the wheel of the Bitcoin Core GitHub repo. And all of them are like deadly uh, afraid of making any controversial change to Bitcoin. So they're, they're just not doing anything and they're waiting for the community to inform them of what consensus change needs to happen. So they're like really, really skittish. Um, and, and what the community is saying is that we want ossification and the community that is saying that are people that are using, uh, custodial lightning wallets without actually knowing that they're custodial. Uh, and they think that Bitcoin is fine. Like they think that Bitcoin, has, uh, doesn't have any scalability issues, that lightning is perfect because they're using, like when you download an app, uh, on your phone that says lightning, uh, how how do you know whether or not that's a custodial or non-custodial app? It doesn't say if it's a custodial one, it's not going to say this is a, this is a custodial wallet and you may lose all your funds here because that would be would be bad for business. So like Wallet of Satoshi, uh, Blue Wallet, not those other custodial wallets that have been rep, uh, like standing for ninety five percent of the transactional volumes for the Lightning Network. Uh, there's been a bunch, and you can just go to my Twitter account. There was recently one guy that like came into a thread and he said. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Like I'm using Lightning for several years. I never had a single issue with inbound channel capacity or anything like that. And I was like, um, can you send me a, can you send me an invoice so that I can pay you? Or like, can you tell me how much inbound liquidity you have? And then like when he tried to generate it, his he he his wallet threw an error. And that was because that blue wallet had uh, discontinuated um custodial support for light, for their lightning wallet like a year back and now his uh, uh, wallet doesn't work anymore so of course it didn't have any issues with 
the Lightning Network because he had never used the Lightning Network in his entire life. And that has been sort of the, the community that has represent, been rep- representing their interest to the core developers is that everything is fine. It's because they're not frankly aware of what issues even exist in Bitcoin. So yeah. we've need, what we've needed to do in order to... like. We, we are so deluded that we actually think that we are saving Bitcoin by spamming the blockchain with JPEGs. Uh, we're not the ones actually that should that should take the credit or blame for this. We've just kickstarted this sort of phenomena. But you know, it's mostly like Asian buyers that are speculating yeah. on random BRC twenty tokens that stand for like ninety percent of the ordinal's activity. Uh, that's that. I mean, that we didn't have anything to do with that except like making ordinals uh, a popular thing. But I think, you know, you know, I think that we can smoke them out. I think like Luke Jr., Luke Dash Jr. Uh, yeah. is um, when he's not talking he's, about like he's eating. He's pretty cats, mad right now. He's pretty. <laughs> he's pretty <laughs> mad. I, he, I mean, he had a rough year though. He um, he had he lost all his Bitcoin. Like his computer yeah, got hacked, and he lost all his Bitcoin. So he had to take a job, uh, and he took a job. He basically revived his old mining pool called the Eligius pool. That quite in- interesting. It quite interestingly, Eligius, the Eligius mining pool is the thing it's famous for is that they used to put uh, prayers on the blockchain. With each block that they mined, you have like a Coinbase field where you can put some arbitrary data, <laughs> and Luke would put his Catholic prayers in there, <laughs> and um, uh, that is the pool that he's now reviving together with funding from Jack Dorsey, the uh, previous CEO of Twitter, uh, founder of Twitter. Uh, and they are uh, like aggressively trying to filter ordinals from, from and inscriptions from en- entering uh, the blockchain. Uh, however, well, they've, the given, problem- they've given three fee tiers now. And I think if you want to be uh, unholy, you can direct your template toward the, toward the one that does allow inscription so but yes i i've i've seen what <laughs> i've certainly been following this yeah and i kind of i kind of regret even talking about them because uh it's so clear that they're gonna fail uh i think they know that they're gonna fail and i think that they they're probably using it as a marketing tactic to to be like yeah we try we, you know we're the, we're the good guys that try to save the blockchain from spam in the end they're not gonna do anything of that they're, they may mine like five percent of the total blocks that they make over the next year may be censoring ordinals, but it's just like not uh, incentive compatible. So it's more yeah. like, I think it's more like a, a marketing stunt uh, that that they're doing basically. Um, well, let me, so let me anyway. ask something really, let me ask something really quick. Uh, are you encouraged at all to see what they are either doing or saying they're going to do with Stratum V2 and, uh, I don't know what, what is it like direct payout to miners through. I mean, they say Lightning. I don't know how feasible this is right now, but um, is it like direct Coinbase payouts to miners individually? Uh, I mean, is this is this something like? Let's look on the bright side for one second. Is this something that that is encouraging? I mean, maybe this is not economically viable over the, the long run, and I think that you're right that this probably is not. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Quickly. Yeah. So the direct pay, payouts from miners. Uh, which basically means like when when you create a block, the Coinbase transaction will uh, when the the moment that the block is mined, the correct hashers that contributed to that block will be getting the payment. 
right. so it won't be like the payments go to a pool or a controller address that then distributes it later to the contributing parties. Um, but that is actually, in, in my opinion, the, the least the far least interesting aspect of uh, Stratum v2. Stratum v2 is a protocol that allows individual hashers, if they find uh, if they find the hash that uh, you know solves the difficulty target, so it's a, it's a valid right. hash for a block, then they get to um, select which transactions are going to be in that block. So they're basically creating the blocks. They're the builders uh, right, right. of of the blocks. I would say this is like philosophically in a like going in a super valid direction. Like it's decentralizing block building away from these pools to the individual miners that are hashing on those blocks. So that's obviously right. obviously very, very very powerful. However, um, and and I, and I know that you may want to get into this deeper in a bit. Uh, so maybe this is a nice segue. But um, the more MEV that exists on a chain, uh, the least, the less likely it is that you know you as a miner alone, you know, in Kazakhstan with your hash rate is gonna be uh, building, actually doing the block construction. Right. Because if there's MEV, then it means that you know there are you need some level of sophistication in order to mine a, a, a valid block. Basically, you have to run more sophisticated software. So uh, the MEV trend is sort of making the Stratum V2 idea uh, sort of unviable because um, unless we get something like MEV boost in Bitcoin where these individual uh, miners can actually find uh, very valuable blocks on their own, the way you know the the whole journey that we have to take in Ethereum, where um, basically have but but even then like e- e- even with MEV boost, um, you're still gonna you're still gonna fall into the same trap as Ethereum, where you're basically gonna have well you still need MEV searchers, and then you need then you need relays, and what if the relay is now so you have MEV boost, but what if the relay is like doing OFAC censorship, then right. spe- those specific transactions are not gonna get through so um yeah i like i love stratum v2 as an idea but uh, the idea of stratum v2 would not survive in in a in a high mev uh, generating environment on bitcoin yeah what do you see as so you've talked about this i would like to dig in a bit more uh okay so on ethereum most mev i'm sort of generalizing right now most mev is generated through the interaction with smart contracts, like for all intents and purposes. It is because of this rich statefulness, right? And it is not generated typically through what we may think of as peer-to-peer interaction, right? So like if I, if we can put this in the context of, of Bitcoin, if I send you a, if I send you Bitcoin and I send it directly to your, you know, wallet address, um, typically there is not intermediation there that can be profitable, right? Because it's it's a UTX. So I'm signing over, I mean, once again, I'm still fine this, but I'm signing over the rights for you to now sign over those coins. This is directly peer-to-peer. This is not exactly what happens on Ethereum. And, and most of Ethereum MEV is generated as a result of all of these different actors, right? Vying to 
see transactions before other people, front run, back run, sandwich. I'm very interested on your thoughts. Does okay, so maybe I'll I'll segment this into two two questions. Um, what do you see as the future of MEV on Bitcoin? And does this require rich statefulness on the L1? And and maybe a, an extension of that question. How feasible is this? Um, so I don't know if that was two or three questions, but go ahead. Yeah, so I, I think uh, let, let's use... I asked Phil Dion about like what's the actual uh, proper definition of MEV, but I, I think let, let's use one that's a little bit more practical for this context. So let's use a definition of MEV that is, that is the amount of money that you can make... Um, by creating a block, mining a block that goes th- that goes beyond just picking the most valuable transactions that you see in the mempool. Right. So if if you do anything else, like if you're just picking transactions, like okay, I like this one, it pays a high fee per the kilobyte that it takes up, and I like this one, and you're just sorting them basically by fee rate. Uh, let's call MEV everything that allows you to generate more revenue than just doing that. Right. Do mind though, keep in mind though that um, even sorting transactions by their fee rate um, is would have been called MEV in Bitcoin previously, or actually, actually it's still called MEV now because um, in Bitcoin the way the way that the policy for uh, Bitcoin nodes worked was that the first transaction is, that you see is the one that you're going to mine. It's called the first seen policy. Right. So Bitcoin miners wouldn't even like if you if you're sending two transactions and you're sending both of them to me, and uh, in one of them you're paying five dollars as a transaction fee, and in the other you're paying five thousand dollars, the miner would still honor your first transaction because he saw it first, and then when he sees another one that's conflicting, then he just like nah. I'm I'm not doing that, um, and this is what the, the the reason that we that the Bitcoin miners had such a policy was because it was believed by early Bitcoiners that it was the, in the best interest of the protocol to uh, have like this was before Lightning and such solutions existed where it was very cumbersome to receive a payment if you had to wait for a block. And you know, in Bitcoin, a block can take anything between a couple of seconds or multiple hours. Usually it takes around 10 minutes. But it's not that uncommon. Like I saw it yesterday, a block that took uh, like over an hour, uh, over two hours maybe, I think it even was. Uh, so that if that's like you're trying to pay a merchant two hours gonna fuck up your your day like you're sitting at your computer you want to know if right. your payment has gone through like that, that doesn't really work so what they did was uh they had this first scene policy so the first transaction that you see in the mempool would be the one that you uh honored and that allowed for low valued uh transactions you could see a transaction coming in uh as a merchant and then you'd be like oh well most miners are gonna mine this one like 90 what I've seen is like 99.99%. This was back in the day. Uh, would honor this first scene policy. So they, they that that was how Bitcoin transactions were done. Uh, now, um, they're, so, so how uh, the Bitcoin protocol evolved from that was that 
there was a new transaction uh, flag that was called that was uh, called RBF, which meant replace by fee, so that people could voluntarily opt in to the ability to replace their transaction with a more high fee, fee paying transaction. So if you were worried as a user that your transaction would get stuck because the fees got higher in the next block and your transaction basically never got mined and you could never like replace it. Uh, they had a specific flag called the RBF flag, which allowed you to uh, broadcast a transaction with a higher fee and then the highest paying fee uh, transaction would get included. Now, there was one pool uh, that just said, fuck it to all these first scene rules and didn't even care about the RBF flags. It just mined the transactions with the highest fee and it threw out the first scene once like that. The only ones that were, the only one that was doing that was the Eligius pool, the the uh, Luke Jr. Uh, Luke Jr.'s original pool. That was the only one that was doing it. Uh, but that was enough of a pool like for it to happen. It happens sometimes. Um, and a lot of people believe that uh, you know this that that uh, miners violating the first scene uh, policy was never going to become a problem. Most of the the um, People on the Bitcoin Cash side, you know, the the people that split off from Bitcoin in 2017 after the block size wars, they believe that miners are never gonna, uh, you know, miners care about Bitcoin. They're never gonna violate the uh, violate the uh, uh, the first scene policy. Uh, so this is no longer true. Like 70% of miners, I think, today violate the first scene policy and do something called full RBF. So full RBF is actually a, a modus of MEV in Bitcoin. It's a way for you to generate more revenue than other miners are re- re- generating by doing something that is non-standard. But now if we say that standard now is to just include all the most profitable profitable transactions that you see, um, well, so let, let me give some examples of what, what MEV on Bitcoin can look like. So... Uh, when we mine this four megabyte block with Luxor mining, the inscription 652, the big taproot wizard, um, uh, I just remember that I didn't explain exactly what taproot wizard is or why it's called taproot wizard. But so let, let me just do that like super quick. Uh, so taproot was the latest latest upgrade in Bitcoin, and uh, people in the Bitcoin industry had been promoting taproot as an idea uh, as a protocol change that would. Uh, create smart contracts on top of Bitcoin. And with these smart contracts, Ethereum would, would base, basically become obsolete because we would have a level of expressiveness in Bitcoin smart contracts that would like be able to compete with, with uh, Ethereum. So people were saying like Taproot is going to blow your mind. And you know if you actually looked into what Taproot was doing, it was a, a very minor, like um, very minor like scalability improvement because you could sort of uh, make a multi-sig look like a single sig, so it didn't need to take up more transaction, more space in the blockchain. Uh, it also increased the privacy because you had Schnorr signatures, so it doesn't, it's not visible on the blockchain if it, if if you are a a three out of a two out of three signature or a single signature in in a multi-sig, it looks the same, so it gives you some more privacy. But people were blowing this out of proportion, and you know thinking that we were going to have smart contracts on Bitcoin and people were saying that that's what they wanted. And then, you know, a year after Taproot was upgraded, we still had like less than 1% adoption of of Taproot. And there was basically no one doing anything that had any material. Like maybe some people had some fee savings somewhere. Maybe some people had some privacy advantages somewhere, but Bitcoin is still not scalable or private. So it's like 
a really like small change. Anyway, so ordinals uh, use Taproot. Uh, so when we created these wizard JPEGs, that was the most successful application of Taproot and has brought Taproot adoption from 1% to 70%. Now, so uh, this is why like we're, we're making magic with with, uh, and you know the, we're called we're we're calling it magic basically because Luke Luke Junior is also he's the longest tenured core developer of Bitcoin. He calls um, he calls ordinals an exploit. He said he, he's saying that uh, Casey Rodermore that invented the uh, ordinals protocol lied and tricked the code when he wrote uh, a Bitcoin script that allowed you to. Uh, embed arbitrary data into blocks without triggering any of the um, like standardness or, or filtering rules. Um, so this is why like Taproot wizards are, are like um, you know, m- making Bitcoin magical again with, with Taproot. Anyway, going, going back to the MEB. Um, so uh, the example where Luxor mining uh, uh, steps away from this policy rule that you should only mine a transaction if it's 400 kilobytes large and actually makes an entire block a single transaction uh that is and and you know and, and they can take they can generate you know profit that they're, they're doing something uh you know they charge us a i think a small premium i think the premiums for that has gone up significantly since then uh but we did pay them a premium so that is a form of MEB. If you're willing to re- rewrite your uh, Bitcoin Core node or whatever uh, software that you're using to produce blocks to uh, uh, obviate or abandon standardness rules, that's a form of MEB. So that is one form of MEB that exists on the Bitcoin blockchain. But there, there's also other types. So also in the Ordinals protocol, there's uh, something called, and I, I don't engage in this, nonsensical activity myself. I'm not angry at people that do it, but there are people that have decided that uh, each Satoshi in, so that's the minimum, uh, that's like the the um, the way in, in, in ETH, ETH, so like the smallest unit of, of the smallest decimal point of, of, a, of, a, of a Bitcoin is called the Satoshi. Right. Uh, so there are some people that have decided that some of them are rare. Like the first one that is mined out of a difficulty adjustment is you know, rare, and they have these different ways to make different Satoshis rare. And so miners can, if they want to, they can be aware, they can run the ordinals protocol and be aware of which Satoshis are rare and make sure that all of them uh, are, uh, that, that they as the pool hold on to these rare Satoshis. So the pool has a way to access MEV here. So they, they don't distribute these uh, rare Satoshis to the other Hashers, they just collect them in a in a wallet. Yeah, I think um, Amp Pool is doing this right now, or yeah, Amp, Amp yeah, or F two Pool. F two Pool is the one that, that I've yeah. seen that does it. F two yeah. Pool also does another thing that's uh, that that is interesting, and I, even more like we're I'm gonna with each example, I'm aiming to bring you closer to something that looks more like MEV that uh, in the way that yeah, that's ex- what we exists want to get on, into. on Ethereum. Yeah. Um, so F two Pool, one thing that they do. So there, there's there's a protocol protocol called Stacks. Which is like a side chain to Bitcoin. Yes, and they have something. Uh, co- they basically have like a, a each each uh, stacks block is an auction. You 
have the ability to create the next stacks block by sending Bitcoin to a specific address, and then you get to mine the stacks block reward. It's like a lottery based on like how many Bitcoins you sent in, and I think like, you have a larger chance to win the stacks uh, block reward. So it's, it's like basically like an auction for X, STX tokens for the stacks. Uh, protocol that's ongoing all the time. So, but if you're a miner, you can just like censor all the other participants in the auction and you can send a stink bid for like a couple of Satoshis and then you'll get the full uh, STX block reward. So, if you're censoring uh, other stacks related transactions, uh, then you, you as a miner will always be able to uh, get STX for an extremely low price, and then you can just dump it the same second that you get it, and now you have a profit. That is, that is clear MAB uh, that exists on Bitcoin today. And interestingly yeah. enough, this is not because of the Ordinals protocol. This is not right. something that happened due to, due to Taproot or anything else. This is something that can happen to any type of you know, protocol that builds on top of Bitcoin. Uh, ordinals and inscriptions that just basically opened up the door for way more of this activity to exist on, on top of Bitcoin. Um, so those are some of the examples that I can remember from the, oh, well, actually, actually, uh, an, an, uh, a better, perhaps an even more interesting uh, uh, example here is, um, you know, so, so the, uh, the ordinals market, the NFTs, uh, there is a way to um, make decentralized trades between Bitcoin and ordinal NFTs. And that's using something called pre-signed Bitcoin transactions. So right. what it basically means is that a Bitcoin transaction, uh, let's say it looks like a box and it contains several inputs and outputs. So that can be uh, one person sending some Bitcoin to another person. And then it can be another Satoshi getting sent to another uh person in the same transaction so you can basically one transaction can basically create like an atomic swap so there's actually two trades happening at the same time inside a block because well i get your satoshi and you get my satoshi and if now the ordinals protocol is involved where this satoshi now represents an nft not the bitcoin a bit uh, well it's going to represent some small bitcoin res residual bitcoin value anyway because that's how the protocol right. works but you can have five bitcoin here and then a some satoshis here and when you swap them to different outputs and the buyer controls one of the outputs and the seller controls one of the out outputs that's an atomic transaction so uh how um how these trades are conducted is that you'll basically have a, a seller that who wants to sell uh an ordinal create a partially signed bitcoin transaction and say to the world here's the ordinal that i want to sell, this is how much money that I want to get for it. If you take this half complete Bitcoin transaction and you fill it up with the, uh, with the appropriate amounts so that the, tra the, tra the transaction is complete, then you can broadcast that to the network. And when it, get mine, when it gets mined, I get the Bitcoins that I wanted and you get my uh, Satoshi. That's a, that's a PSBT swap, a pre-signed Bitcoin transaction swap. Uh, however, um, when people are sort of uh, issuing an NFT collection this way, and these pre-signed Bitcoin transactions are getting flooded over in, into the mempool, what a miner can do is like, you can look at all those transactions and be like, well, actually, I wanted to be the one that 
participated in this PSD swap. So I'm just going to throw you out of the transaction and fill it up with my uh, inputs and output, outputs. So when you have a collection that is, for example, doing a free mint, like here's a popular artist making a free mint, or, you know, because NFT issuers generally want to uh, have the mint at below uh, market prices because they want their community to be up, right? You want your whole community to be two or three times up from their buy price. So they're like loving you and spreading your message and promoting you and like allowing you to make more collections and stuff like that. Uh, so, so being, so those having access to those mints are usually like whitelisted processes. Oftentimes, they're whitelisted, so that you're only allowing people that are have like showed like some interest in your project previously and like is a distinct person, uh, something like that. Uh, so, what what we had we we had a couple of occasions where. Um, and this wasn't actually, this was not the case that it was a miner that was doing this, but it was a bot that was running that just looked at the mempool and then just replaced those pre-signed Bitcoin transactions with their own minting uh, inputs and outputs and set the higher fee rate. And because most of the Bitcoin miners are using uh, full RBF these days, they would mine uh, those transactions instead. And so people were able to basically front run uh, these NFT mints. Um, these are also... th these are people. These are people effectively not getting their orders filled. To be clear, so like yeah. it, it, you're attempting to purchase an NFT, somebody comes in and snipes it from under you because they can fill this order. I mean, I'm I'm trying to uh, sort of simplify this. So. Yeah. Okay. I would. Yeah. I would concede this is a form of MEV. Um, and especially if you're a miner, because then the bots can't. The bots can front run as much as they want, and the miners just gonna uh, rake their, in the fees. Uh, yeah, they're, they're they're just gonna throw the bots transactions out, and ultimately put their own transactions in. So that right. is a form of MEV. So now you know it comes down to like the people that are trying to use the protocol has to be aware of how the system functions and what the miners can do and build like MEV safe uh, auctions and and, min yeah. and mints basically. But yeah, we do have a situation where there's uh, MEV on Bitcoin. That's the reality of the situation. And it didn't come with uh, inscriptions and ordinals. Inscriptions and ordinals ba basically exacerbated the problem, made it more visible and it also created like a, what we call like a season two in Bitcoin, uh, such that there's a lot more money to be made uh, flipping various Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin native assets, uh, well, native and native, Bitcoin associated assets, assets that have their home on Bitcoin, essentially. So there's more demand for that right now. And uh, so, so MEV is coming back, well, is coming to Bitcoin in a, in a very serious way. Yeah. Um, okay. Let me let's like zoom out a teeny bit, and I'm going to provide some context. And this isn't intended to be too critical towards Ethereum, but uh, fundamentally, what I see—I mean, outside of users getting front run and background and sandwich—the larger problem here is sort of what I would consider to be the economies of scale that develop from MEV, right? Like, so these builders and these validators do. Are they benefiting? Are are they benefiting in an outsized way? And I think you would agree with this. I think most everybody who believes in the theory of blockchains, if you will, that 
one of our goals, one of our fundamental pillars of these systems is that we want to make it very costly to censor, right? So you can censor a blockchain, right? If you, and if you can propose the block, you can censor. And indeed, people will censor. What I think is concerning, and this is sort of like I'm attempting to kind of create some overlap here, you'll understand, with Ethereum is that we are observing right now this occurring on Ethereum. And, and like, once again, I, I'm, I'm not intending to just, I, I do enough trolling on Twitter. I don't think I need to be uh, too caustic in how I explain this. But, you know, we have uh, effectively two builders that are building 60 to 70% of the blocks. We also know, it's no, it's no secret who these builders are. Like, we know, we know who are behind most of the blocks being built on Ethereum. Uh, we also recently had Blocksrout, which is a relay and also just another MEV shop say that they will be censoring OFAC transactions, right? The bigger idea here for me is, in theory, right? Like, if once again, going back to sort of first principles, this is something I'm saying now that I'm a podcaster. Going back to first principles, our goal is that if somebody is going to do this, this should almost be a death knell of sorts for their business, right? Like, over a sufficient sample size, they cannot be profitable censoring transactions. And I think that this is the... I mean, you know, I genuinely believe some of the smartest people in the world are working on MEV. But sometimes I think that we should zoom out and at least repeat this kind of premise, right? Like, which is that if it is not cost... If it is not costly to censor a blockchain, because you can make a lot of money with all the liquidity you have on Binance, right? Because you have a constant 12-second arbitrage on Ethereum. If you can make a lot of money for these sort of exogenous uh, financial activities, this is like really bad. Like this is very, very bad. And I think that what the Bitcoin community is seeing to some extent, or and, and you're spot on, there's no way to prevent this. And I think that I've seen a lot of compelling arguments that, you know, you you start censoring, you start filtering, you're ruining the mempool, and this just exacerbates the problem. So I, I'm, I'm generally on board with this. I think what is concerning, and this is just applies to these systems as a whole, is what are we doing to make it costly to censor? And, and maybe if you want to sort of give your thoughts on this with regards to Bitcoin. Um, I don't know. I just thought I'd zoom out for a second. Go ahead. Yeah, no. So um, uh, this is a super... Uh, super important conversation, and thank you. Um, no, so I, and and I, and I don't think that I don't I don't think that people I don't I I don't think that people have done the topic justice either. Um, I mean, I I don't I don't know if you remember like the black flag movement. It was very like a flash in the pan. It's not you're not going to remember it, but it was a, it was when uh, censorship was starting. To happen after the merge, where there was only a uh, yes, only yeah, you wrote an article. Reload. Yeah, I wrote an article, and then you know, few people started wearing uh, like the black flag next to their Twitter handles, with, which basically signaled that uh, if uh, transact if OFAC transactions are no longer getting uh, through into into Ethereum, and it's because of um, OFAC censoring validators, then we're going to slash them. We're not, we're not going to slash individual uh, validators that are OFAC compliant, but it's if they go to the extreme where they're also not uh, attesting to blocks that um, also, right. so like they're not even voting or attesting to others blocks that uh, include those transactions later, then uh, I mean, what, what Vitalik was talking about, like from way back 
was that this is this is why proof of stake is great because we can surgically target those validators individually and slash them theoretically. Well, uh, and 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 but I I think that 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 was it was a moment there where people were like almost um, you know they were uh, apathetic in a sense that they were like oh you know OFAC centric OFAC censorship is happening now and that's too bad and like. What are you talking about? They're like this is not something that is bad. Like crypto doesn't have a purpose <laughs> at all if this is the case. So like we have to, we have to burn. Like we have to burn the whole thing down. And if something survives, like fuck it. If all the stable coins die, like whatever survives will right. have more value than the thing that that that, that dies. That's right. my belief. That's why I'm in crypto. Anyway, so. Uh, I guess the sort of controversial position that I am in right now is that I'm here uh, doing stuff on Bitcoin that has been relatively, uh, you know, uh, it has been, um, how do I say it? It has been uh, free from these, um, you know, excess, you know, extreme MEV uh, protocols. And it ha we haven't seen the need for you know hash rate to uh re relocate to go to like right. mev savvy uh pools or anything like that yet but the more the further along we go in this bitcoin season 2 ordinal arbitrary block space stuff the closer we're going to get to ethereum's problems and even though that the situation on the validator validator level has improved on uh, Ethereum significantly, where now um, you used to have eighty percent. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you used to have eighty percent of the validators. Uh, it mean, means the people that ha had their stake locked up. Eighty percent of them used to be connected to relays that were censoring, uh, but now it's like thirty-five percent. But you have the people that are building the blocks and they are like seventy percent censoring. So the problem is just moved around. And right. it comes from what you say, like it comes from economies of scale. When a, a task requires sophistication and requires, you know, maybe it requires geographically distributed nodes and it requires very modern software, it requires uh, software that's iterated upon to find the best practices to extract MEV, then you do end up with a pretty centralized pipe. You, what do you end up with? most importantly, is a pretty professional actor, a professional shop. Yeah, you got a bunch of like MIT quants and supercomputers and a tremendous amount of liquidity. Yeah. And that's what you end up with. <laughs> and and send, OFAC censorship is not that expensive at the moment. You flag right. it, you, you just don't pick up a couple of transactions. You don't pick up a set of transactions from um, from the mempool. You don't, you don't make blocks out of those transactions. But uh, it's very rare that something is like an OFAC transaction. Most of the time, you know, right, you're not right. going to even notice it, right? And uh, what the and the more people do this, like if it gets to a point where like almost everyone is OFAC censoring, then those people are going to stop making transactions on that blockchain. So then there's not you're not even going to be able to see the fees that you're missing out on because people aren't even using your chain anymore. So there right. won't even be your fee revenue won't even be any different uh, from anyone else because those guys just leave for another system. Yeah. Well, so can I, let me let me yep. ask you a really quick question. Um, is his name Tune? 
I'm I don't want to I don't want to remember the the CEO of is it F is it F two pool um, is it Chun Chun do you know what I'm Sato talking Fishy, about Satofishi yeah, Satofishi so, Satofishi yes correct correct yeah. okay so um, one of these researchers I am and I know you saw this one of these researchers noticed recently that this pool was more than likely, you know, it's sort of like a probabilistic thing with, with fee rates and blocks and so on and so forth. But they found that there was probably some OFAC censorship or filtering being done by this pool. And this, the head of this pool, the CEO, there was, uh, I, I, so I don't know if I'm sort of uh, using the social layer here when, I, when it supports my argument versus <laughs> condemning the social layer when, I, when it doesn't support my argument. But um, there was some backlash on Twitter. I don't know if this... I mean, I don't know how much the laser eyes got upset, but maybe some of the individual hashers uh, were probably upset about this. And he came out and said, okay, we'll stop filtering. <laughs> I mean, it, like, what do you think... So I don't know if this persists. Like, I, I don't know if this is something that is sustainable, if, they, if, if a pool can just ignore the rules. But is there something... And I, I'll I'll finish by saying, I tweeted, I mean, it's not not that I have a, a far reach, but <laughs> I tweeted like, "Look, this guy got backlash because they were because they were censoring." And he said, "Okay, fine, I'll stop. Sorry about that." Right? Yeah. And I'm sitting here and I'm looking at, you know, Beaver and RSync filtering OFAC transactions. I'm like, "Hey guys, why don't you just tell them to stop?" Right? Like, is so? What do you think? Are there advantages that Bitcoin has? Um, I mean, geographic distribution, right? This has long been, or I guess maybe not long been, but more recently been purported as something like, you know, the natural geographic distribution of energy is something we have on our side. And it maybe was coincidental, but it is fortuitous. Is there something advantageous, do you think, in the long run um, with Bitcoin? And also, I mean, I'm not, you know, I troll a lot about Ethereum, but I'm not like, I'm not a hypercritic. Like, it, what, what is, what do you think about this? Like, do we have solutions to this? Um, yeah. So with Satoshi, Satoshi, um, the, I mean, the whole reason that he could just like be like, okay, I'll stop must've been because he didn't have a legal, uh, there was nothing legally binding him to conducting that censorship. Um, if, if it is the case that, you know, he's, I mean, this is this is the reason that Flashbot censors, right? It's not because Flashbot uh, hates, you know, um, Ethereum and doesn't respect. You know, you have some of the most uh, censorship-minded folks in the world at Flashbots, and I know several right. of them. Um, but they, with their company structure or how, however it happened, it was just like they had too many people that were in the U.S., uh, like U.S. Uh, domiciled residents, you know, native citizens, that they just couldn't, they just couldn't uh, do it because, I mean, and it's not like, you know, what we do on the blockchain uh, doesn't lead to you getting thrown into a prison cell that is like actively happening now. You have uh, Alexei Pertsev and uh, Semenov, the other guy, Roman Semenov, um, getting thrown into prison cells for uh, we don't know how long. So... Like, yeah, at some point, you know, the those worries are going to take hold. And if you, so right now there's not, there's not, a, a, there is not a, um, so validators in Ethereum don't, they don't currently have this legal onus on them to censor. That's at least I saw a Coinbase 
um, person uh, at Coinbase who said that there's nothing in the law that makes it so that they have to do OFAC censoring at the validator level. I think that the builders are kind of, they don't give a shit. They're like, we're making money. Well, they made making, so much money. Uh, yeah. yeah. They're making tons of money and they're like, they they don't even have to be, I mean, they're not even visible. Like we, people don't even know who they are with, with the, with the stakers. We like, we know, okay, this is, this is right. like Coinbase and they can get slashed. The, the builder, you can do nothing to him. Like how right. do you punish the builder? So he takes no like community danger to him by uh, censoring. Um, anyway, I, I want to sort of make it back to to the the point with Bitcoin, because I was, you know, on the one hand that I do feel that Lightning has issues. We need better layer two protocols on Bitcoin, and the only way that we can get there is to create a high fee environment on Bitcoin. So that we can, uh, first of all, discover that lightning sucks and it doesn't work. And that has been happening over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and then we need to create a type of protocol that has better better user experience so that people use it non-custodially without even thinking about it. Um, so, but the, the, the risk here then becomes, what if all that, you know, new expressiveness that you need in order to build this better layer two solutions, what if that brings MEV to Bitcoin? And then you get into the situation that Ethereum has. So this is this is this is where I'm at. Like this is where my big difficulty is at the moment. Like I want to bring all this zero knowledge proof stuff into Bitcoin. You know, so what if you if you if you wonder like how I'm thinking about what my plan is, I think that you know there are ways that you can con construct these layer two systems without um, the MEV necessarily being that big of a problem. So for example, if you have a rollup and the rollup is sequenced by a permission set and it's a, a it's a, um, a, val um, a validity rollup. So these permissioned sequencers even though permission sounds like an extremely bad word, they cannot actually steal uh, your funds. They cannot do anything. They can only they can only put valid uh, transactions on the blockchain. And if for some reason they stop making transactions, then uh, you can always take your funds out of the chain by uh, making an L1 transaction. Um, so that's not necessarily like dangerous to to have. But if those sequencers uh, if they don't, uh, if they don't, if they are the ones that are sequencing these transactions, they basically just what what happens from the layer one perspective of Bitcoin is that there's just a, a sequenced batch that comes and embeds itself as an arbitrary data blob. It pays some fee, and that's that might now be a valuable transaction, but uh, for a mine, the miners that are gonna, they cannot dissect that transaction. So it's just like any other transaction that pays a high fee. So what it can result in is that, okay, what if there's like immense amounts of MEV now happening in the ZK rollup and you have a block that's like paying huge amounts of like transactions. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe the miner didn't like, maybe the miner wants to like reorg the chain back to a time where um, this block didn't end up in the Bitcoin blockchain and they try to become like validators in the 
sequencers in the ZK rollup somehow. So they get to be the ones that mine this extremely valuable block. So there are like uh, reorg risks that can happen when you have very high, uh, when you have very, very volatile MEV spikes or like transaction fee spikes on Bitcoin. And I think what MEV creates in Bitcoin, even when you construct it correctly, the worst thing that it creates is that you have this basically, you have one block that maybe pays, um, could pay like, uh, let's say it pays $300,000 in in uh, transaction fees. And then the next block pays $500 uh, in transaction fees. Then, you know, as a miner, you have an incentive to reorg those blocks and just so that other people were in the position of receiving those rewards. But um, that is uh, that is a very different problem than the uh, like pipeline right, transaction right. pipeline building problem that we're right. talking about in Ethereum. The thing that leads to like censorship. Uh, so I think that that's something that we can deal with. But uh, that said, though, uh, that the MEV has this tendency to it where like you think that you can encapsulate it. You think that oh well, I can confine the process through like a sequencer, or e- even right. with a drive chain idea. Like Paul Storch has this idea that well, if you um, there's something called BIP 301 where yeah, um, you're basically auctioning off the revenue from the uh, drive chain in a single transaction right. that the miners well, get to. Yeah, uh, I think like it, yeah, that's that. This is a good example from from what I have observed with the discussion around drive chains is like there's this premise that if you have blind merge mining right like so that what effectively what you're saying not entirely dissimilar to a zk rollup whereby the miner is just always selecting the highest fee from these l2s right but the thing is it's like the blind aspect doesn't really matter because if they can make to, to me okay so this would this would be my counterpoint and i mean uh, you don't obviously certainly don't have to listen to me, but the way I see it, and I think you know, it's been corroborated by people who do understand this very well. Like Shinobi has had very long conversations with Paul Stork about this. You know, my, if miners can make a lot of money by being effectively the sequencers on these L2s, they're going to want to do that. So, like this, this kind of blind part of it is it's almost irrelevant. Now, I, I know that Paul would fire back about this, but you know, I, I will say, yeah. I, I have, I have sort of the way that I view drive chains is not. In, I'm not entirely optimistic about it. Um, I'm, I'm less. I think you're probably a lot more knowledgeable in the zk aspect, uh, obviously, and so I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear that. But yeah, I think you know this. If miners can make more money, right? Like obviously, in, in validating or sequencing these L2s, like they're going to take that on, and I do think that is. You know, I do. I certainly think that's a risk um, in terms of centralization. Yeah, and to summarize that into something. By the way, I, I don't know. So I think your audience is mostly Ethereum people. I don't know if they're going to understand what the fuck we're talking about at all because we're talking about so like, nitty gritty. <laughs> I don't stuff. know who my audience is. <laughs> okay, well, I see you mostly like talking about like paradigm yeah, folks yeah. and Hasu and like you know my um, homies. But so so what? How I think about this issue is that. The issue that we're talking about is that you're basically going to have one chain over here that is going to settle on this other chain over here. And the protocol designers want to make sure that all the MEV sort of gets compressed 
and a single transaction uh, that right. gets picked up by the layer one. I think that's a like my experience of MEV is that it leaks out everywhere. Like you, tr- right. if you try to confine it and try to pipe it through this little hole that you want it to go in through, it's going to find some other way to leak in and affect the underlying system. That is my fear. Um, so what I was going to say is that I think that, yes, Bitcoin needs other layer twos, but I think that we should also learn a lot from the Ethereum space and see like where their struggles has been. And maybe we don't, maybe we can build better second layers on Bitcoin than Lightning, but maybe we don't need fully expressive uh, second layers. You can have, yeah. for example, a, a, um, you know, I think a, a, an excellent la- second layer on Bitcoin could be something that, okay, it allows you to do um, uh, this PSBT swaps, like swaps, some swaps, like some very basic DEX swap transactions. Maybe um, uh, it would be very nice if you could have uh, private transactions in that layer too. So you, you could have Zcash style uh, privacy uh, transactions. And and you could allow for some like covenants and, and, and some other things, but you could basically create like a hampered, almost like disabled uh, system that gives you the excellent UX that uh, you know people have come to experience from some rollups. Like it's super easy. Just give me an address. I'll send it. No routing. No bullshit. Like you, you can be offline. Receive how many payments you want without having having any any inbound liquidity. And you can also do some pretty interesting like vaulting features. For example, if you want to like. Um, if you wake up and you hear that your whole your your wallet got, st- got stolen, all, all your apes or wizards are now on the on on the run. You have like a twenty four hour period where you can claw those back to the main wallet and 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 get them back. Uh, so like there's some you know, but there are some things that we want to do with 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 Bitcoin and Bitcoin transactions um, that we want to do at the layer two, but we don't need necessarily to uh, invite the entire behemoth of uh mev from from the get-go um i think that you know this is going to be for bitcoin an experimental process where we try some uh fully like turing complete uh just like doing sovereign rollups for example that's happening now anyway I'm, i know multiple teams that are building sovereign rollups i was in tel aviv i think was it this yeah, earlier this year, like championing this idea of like let's try sovereign rollups on Bitcoin, and now we have like teams that are very close to shipping their proof of concepts uh, um, zk sovereign rollups on Bitcoin. Um, but I'm if if this leads to a situation where like MEV is starting to seriously affect the chain, then um, I hope that in Bitcoin, like we'll we won't. Like so, what what the Ethereum, what the Ethereum idea is that you know let's just have as much of this as we can, and then let's try to fix fix the problem uh, at the root, so that that we we're doing it with like um, PBS and inclusion lists, so that every um, validator has a set of transactions that they need to include, and this way right. censorship cannot happen. Um, but I, you know, I, I, the Ethereum system is still a little bit in flux. I'd say, are they, are they, are, are are they going to solve it or are they not? And before we invite like that level of MEV into the Bitcoin system, 
we should at least see that the Ethereum people have. Yes, I out. agree. <laughs> and and also, I'm I'm honestly I'm honestly happy to hear you say this because, you know, once again, not not to be too critical, but you know, you you look at some of these. I think you're kind of referring to this idea of MEV accelerationism. Everything is accelerationism now that yeah. Yeah. we have AI around. Every every new tech you want to accelerate as fast as possible. So there's these kind of MEV accelerationists, which are like you know, the premise is we're gonna let you know, we're just going to like let it all play out to, 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 to see where this sort of develops within the cog that is the block building supply chain, right? We'll, we'll see where this develops and then we'll like cut it off at its source, right? With, with the inclusion list and PBS and then try and PBS and nobody actually knows how that works. And I mean, I am probably very much in agreement with you in the sense that I'm observing what is going on and I'm saying, okay, there's basically two block builders. Uh, I'm being reductive there. There are more than two block builders. But you know, two block builders are building the majority of the blocks. Um, they're making a lot of money doing it. We have a very profitable relay now that's censoring. It's like, mm, I don't know. Like, how is this acceleration going for us? You know, I I, I have mixed feelings as well. And I, I obviously I don't have the answers. And I and I do believe, I mean, I I know some of the people at the Ethereum Foundation. I I do believe that they are very smart and they understand the problems and they're trying their best. Do, do I know if this is a solvable problem? I'm, I'm unconvinced thus far, but I would generally agree with you insofar as like, mm, we should probably observe what's going on before we, you know, tack on drive chains or something sort of, sort of drastic that really could mess with the incentive structures. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have, I have to think like we're getting so deep in the conversation because I am I am like a, a drive chain advocate. Chill, chill. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no no bags, but um, I think that the the uh, the situation that we've gotten into with like Lightning and the lack of privacy for Bitcoin um, is right now the fears of MEV on drive chains. I think that they are there, like for sure. Like I said, um, with this blind merge mining thing, you're still going to end up in a situation where miners might be incentivized to fee snipe each other. There may be some increased reorg risk. And also, to your point, like that, yeah, miners might may also um, run more powerful software to like engage directly in the MEV extraction themselves. Um, but there's also like what's what's on the other side of that equation. Uh, on the other side of that equation is that we don't have working um, like transactional layers with good UX. We basically on the other side of on the other side of the equation, you have ninety five percent using custodial wallets uh, with zero privacy, and that is also not a fantastic. So I'm thinking that you know you have to you have to pick your poison, and yes, drive chains has a little bit of poison in it. Uh, zk rollups. Uh, fully expressive ZK rollups also has a little bit of that poison in it. Uh, however, um, there's not that much that we can like, oh, okay, we're not gonna like let that happen because as I explained, it's already exists through stacks, right? Stacks also introduces that yeah, same problem. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. Okay, so I would generally agree with that. I would also say that, you know, stacks is a relatively small percentage you know, of, of Bitcoin transactions. So I, like, it's just, just because just, they're unsuccessful. If they are more, if a right, was right, a more successful okay. protocol, there would be more MEV there. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah that, certainly, yeah. certainly. 
so, what do so, you think so yeah so i'm 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 just saying that we cannot we uh, so sort sort of take the other side here uh in favor of the uh you know we have this eac diac uh, and in bitcoin we can call it like biac um so to their point is that you know these uh these problems already exist anyway regardless if um you know you work towards creating sovereign rollups on bitcoin or you enable drive chains um it's not to say that that problem wouldn't have show, because right now it is showing its face it's in a small extent with a, on it with f2 pool and and with this auction that they're running on stacks but if you start to have massive amounts of mev on stacks well then people are going to start to want to become stacks block producers and they're going to collaborate with miners and reorg yeah. uh, the block order and in make sure that their stacks block gets included not the other guys so i mean the, the to their point like the cat is like out of the bag with its ears at the moment and we can like try to strangle Bitcoin and try to be played very very safe and ultimately uh, hamper like years and decades of innovation and and like product and tooling that could have happened for drive chains just because we were afraid of a problem that we would have faced eventually anyway maybe the solution for Bitcoin is gonna have to be something like uh, CR lists inclusion lists on Bitcoin too in the end anyway so it's not. I'll, I'll summarize. I'm torn on this issue. <laughs> I'm torn. It's a complicated issue. I don't know what's right. Yeah. No, I think I'm probably torn as well. Uh, I will say, not to be too critical of Paul Stork here, but you know, I hear him. Paul Storts. Storts. Oh, okay. I thought it was Storts. Okay. Yeah. Storts. It's a weird. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Storts. Um, when. He is sort of presented with this premise that, you know, this this peg system could enable miners to sort of control these these side chains. Uh, he comes back with this idea that miners selling T-shirts is an example of MEV. And I'll I'll be quite honest here. When I hear this, it's like this is so very clearly not what we're talking about. It kind of makes me concerned that we that Paul or the, the drive chain premise has not fully thought this through. And I mean, I know he's being reductive intentionally, right? But this is like saying that Beaver Build selling keychains at ETH Denver is MEV. And it's like, yeah, I mean, you can say that. Like, you can say whatever you want. But like those are very clearly just words. So I mean, I I, I have had you know I, I'm I'm probably in the same same boat insofar as I want to see experimentation. I want to see innovation. I think that I am probably a bit more on the side as somebody who has okay you know I actually intended to sort of talk about this at the beginning, but we just but what if, got what off. if the t-shirts what if the t-shirts become like fifty percent of the revenue and all the other miners go yeah. bankrupt? Well no no then no no all, I, every miner has to become a t-shirt producer, right? In order to stay yes, competitive. But I think that I think that there's been very compelling arguments that the economies of scale in developing software and being able to order transactions is quite different 
than the economies of scale that are represented by selling t-shirts at a conference. So I mean, the I main, mean, I mean, I don't know. Weirder things have happened. Monkey pictures sold for five hundred thousand uh, dollars. Well, those are so worth I don't it. Know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying. I'm just saying that. Uh, um, you said it's a, a reductive argument. I think that, uh, you know, I, Paul makes these weird arguments, and they sound insane to people. Um, he, to me, he reminds me of my dad because. My dad used to make these kinds of arguments and he sounded ev- insane to everyone. But I think I have like an autistic gene that allows me to, to, yeah, to be like, fuck yeah, yeah, I understand, <laughs> I understand yeah. what you're saying. Like, no, no, I, I can I, channel I mean, that autistic energy. Uh, Paul, I mean, Paul is clearly very bright and, and, you know, he's trying something. So I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to pile on. I just, I will say when I hear that and having, having myself observed at the very least, right? Like I'm not, I'm not a searcher. I'm not a builder, but like having observed Ethereum. And he's not going to win the argument by saying that. That's the... Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what do you think is the difference between experimentation and innovation? And, and here's why I ask this, okay? I think that there are Bitcoiners, right? Who want to see innovation. I, I genuinely do. I think now I would generally agree with you that a lot of the Bitcoin community has not really wanted to see that. They want to see ossification. They want to see buy your Bitcoin and send it to your cold card and go and live on your citadel, right? And have 10 children. I, I would generally agree that these people um, may, may not be inclined to, to look outside and, and see what else is going on, right? But I, but I do think there are Bitcoiners who do want innovation, they want to see Bitcoin being used in, in practical ways. You guys just hired one at, at, at Taproot Wizard, somebody who I really respect. I've listened to a lot of his podcasts. I think he is brilliant. Uh, is it, I, I always mispronounce his name, and I already asked you how to pronounce it. Reindahl? Reindahl? Reindale? Reindale. Reindale, okay. Uh, I think there are people who want to see. Reindale. You said that like, you said that like, you don't actually know how to pronounce it. <laughs> It's because it's not it's not it's not his real name. It's an it's an it's a it's an anon name. So it's like an old him... you know, I actually looked this up. It's like an old um uh is it like an old uh cryptography protocol or something? Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, I see I'm I'm, I'm telling you, you about your own employees. <laughs> uh okay. so but okay, sorry, to get back to this question. I think there are people who want to see innovation, right? And I'm, I'm, I would consider myself one of those. Not, not important, but consider myself one of those. But I have spent probably the last two, three years mainly interested in crypto as a whole, right? Like I've always considered myself a Bitcoiner, but I've been more interested in crypto. But I think one interesting thought that I've had, maybe with regards to how you interact with some of the Bitcoin community is... Are there people who also want innovation, but when when maybe you and Udi and, and some other people are saying, you know, look at look at what Ethereum's doing, look at the all of the you know, all of the innovation and experimentation elsewhere. And they're saying, look, I want innovation, but like I'm just not so very convinced that this is that innovative, right? And mm-hmm. and so this is like I think sometimes I wonder if it's less about people being very um sort of turned away from from changing bitcoin or making it more productive versus 
what we define as innovation first. Like we have to maybe agree on what is innovation before, you know, we, we can disagree as to whether or not we need it. So yeah. I'm interested to hear your yeah. thoughts. Um, I have a, a problem uh, in the sense that I'm too honest. Uh, I can't, I'm going to say stuff that's going to uh, make it more difficult for me to um, do my job. Uh, but um, I agree with you in the sense that it's been kind of disappointing. Um, you know, what, so, you know, I've, I've been promoting Ethereum for a long time, right? So I've been on podcasts talking about the wonderful potential of um, decentralized finance, DeFi. And four years ago, you know, I was sitting on podcast and I was saying, well, you know, you can be, uh, you know, you can be in Africa and you have some Bitcoin and like, you know, you're getting a, a salary next month, but you need to spend some money now. Well, you can now trustlessly put it into Compound and take a USD loan and then spend that. And then when you get your money, you get your Bitcoin back. It's like a, it's it's a, without any intermediaries or KYC or anything, you can now get a loan on your collateral. Okay, uh, and that's just like an early, early primitive. And there's also auctions and you know, like all these kinds of stuff, right? But I haven't myself used this once like this ability to take that loan even even once <laughs> uh and uh, you know so dexes i use a lot so uh, i use decentralized exchanges a lot but what am i what are the assets that i'm swapping between uh it's usually like the tokens all the tokens that we have are usually related to more infrastructure it's like infrastructure protocols infrastructure and infrastructure and infrastructure for what what is the ultimate use case that yes. all that infrastructure and liquid staking tokens and all like what is it what is it all producing like what is the use case and um yeah it's like still these like maybe some over collateralized lending that some people may use and uh i don't know uh leverage trading i don't that's not really that's not really like super valuable to, to humankind but um no i mean it yeah yeah, it, uh, it, 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 we're we're kind of lacking on the application layer, right? And um, you know, I, I have I have this one thing that that's called Orbland. That's like uses a blockchain. Um, is really easy to build. Makes sense to have on a blockchain, and there's other nice things to it. But it's not like it's not like that product could not exist uh, at all on a on a on a web two. Uh, platform. Um, so yeah, it's like um, when, when you're when you're saying like why why does Bitcoin like need to learn so much from Ethereum when Ethereum is like seventy percent censored at the builder <laughs> level and uh, it seems like stake is just getting rehypothecated endlessly through. Uh, native yield blast uh, eigenlayer stuff like the, yes. the consensus that with Vitalik did not want to be overloaded. I'm sorry, it's getting very overloaded in various ways. Um, and like, what do they have to show for it? Like, what what is it that is so awesome uh, with Ethereum uh, and all this infrastructure? Like, what what makes it worth it? Um, and I'll say so. What my answer is is that. that the, the simple answer that we still cannot get away from is that 
Lightning is a bad protocol to make peer-to-peer transactions with. And uh, <laughs> Lightning is the only layer two solution that Bitcoin is able to have to do like transactions at scale. It's also so, the only real layer two. Uh, except for fuel, which is the uh, yeah okay fuel the fuel version one fuel fuel version one with a total TVL of five hundred and twenty eight dollars is a real optimistic grow up that uh, is also a real mm-hmm. layer two. Um, okay, shout out. Uh, um, one other point I wanted to make another point on that. By the way, have you seen this? Um, have you seen this conversation between? Uh, David Hoffman and Dankrad, Dankrad Feist. Yes, yes, regarding about, data availability layer. Yeah, yeah, and what constitutes a roll up. <laughs> uh, and Dankrad, so and and uh, and uh, Hoffman is saying, well, you know, now you can have roll ups with all kinds of data availability modes, and you can use Celestia. Uh, by the way, I'm a Celestia investor, uh, so. Uh, okay. But I'm actually going to say something slight, slightly negative about Celestia here, so so it's fine. Anyway, so what we what 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 the main innovation here is that we've made it socially acceptable to call uh, rollups that use other chains for their data availability to be rollups that are just modular and just use other like that that those used to be not called rollups. That that was the definition of not being a rollup when you have your data data not on your chain, right? Uh, but now we call them rollups. So now rollups can uh, change their DA mode, cut 95% of their costs, and still be called a rollup. So uh, obvious choice for many rollups. Like, okay, we can throw out 95% of our costs, and there are just some g- nerds like Dankrad that's going to say, that's actually not a rollup, though. Uh, well, an even more interesting point to that is uh, dank sharding. So with dank sharding, that is a new mode for even for Ethereum to save its uh, for for store for storing its call data. But those data blobs are ephemeral, and full nodes will generally prune them after like a period of two weeks. So the data even on Ethereum will not be like default <laughs> stored by the nodes forever. So rollups on Ethereum are also not rollups because the definition of a rollup is. A second layer, a layer two system that by default the full nodes of the system store that data. Uh, so, so Ethereum rollups are also not rollups post Dank sharding. You know, so so then Dankrad can't really have that argument anymore. So the whole thing sort of dissipates. By the way, what, what was the thing that we were talking about uh, right before that? Um, before I went on that tangent. Uh, the last uh, thing I recall, I was so entranced by. What you were saying. Uh, the last thing I recall was uh, experimentation, innovation, layer twos. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was talking about <laughs> lightning. Yeah. So um, there we go. Yes, lightning. The the only real yeah. L two, and then you said fuel. Yeah. So yeah. So fuel fuel exists. Uh, it's a real roll up. Um, but I mean, it for me, it all comes down to we need good layer two wallets for Bitcoin to make cheap payments with static receive ad- non-custodial receive addresses with high de- degrees of privacy with no inbound liquidity and that is not possible with the current set of um features of the bitcoin layer one that is fundamentally impossible so we need uh better layer two solutions so i'm actually not you know i'm actually not i'm actually not saying that we need all that DeFi nonsense bullshit nft garbage crap and uh you know mev that leads to censorship 
I'm just saying we need better layer two solutions. And in order for me to to reach that goal, I um, uh, have to uh, change Bitcoin. And because you cannot just go and change Bitcoin without changing the culture of Bitcoin. So right now, what Taproot Wizards are about is to promote and create a new culture in Bitcoin by, uh, number one, making the current set of Bitcoiners so fucking frustrated that they're, they'll fork themselves off the chain in order to censor ordinals or something something like that, but also sort of inviting an, another type of community that was more on defense and there was just there was nothing for them in Bitcoin. The, going to the conferences and meeting a bunch of insane people talking about their weird food uh, habits and you know, like uh, sunning, uh, sunbathing their balls and whatever these uh, people do. Um, uh, that was not so that there hasn't been like a compelling entry point into Bitcoin before. So we can create a new, an influx of new users. That's sort of the main goal. But we can sort of make Bitcoin suck so much for the ones that are already in it that they'll be less engaged or even wanting to fork themselves off. And then we will create a layer two solution with the right set of attributes uh, so that we can actually transact non-custodially with Bitcoin. That is the end goal. And like our method of getting there may be like incredibly frustrating and uh, insulting to people. But I do think, you know, I, I, I have spent like years and years and years thinking about this, like how do I achieve this goal? And I, and I, and, and this is the, this is the, the best and most productive. And, you know, I've never seen, you know, people, I don't know if you, if, if you saw, um, you know, actually, actually <laughs> I have coincidentally, I have it here. This uh, little tungsten cube from, uh, oh, yes. from Brad Mills. Oh, he said, uh, yeah. He uh yeah well he paid for it so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dox my address so I have uh I have them I I have my assistant buy the cubes and then uh I uh, take the payment from from the person who's supposed to pay it. um so Brad by the way lost the 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 tungsten he had to pay me a tungsten cube because he bet that uh Ethereum was gonna go below five hundred dollars this uh, last year. Uh, Brad, by the way, is one of the primary uh, promoters of of the Lightning Network, and uh, Brad was like asking a question on Twitter like a couple of months ago, like why, uh, like I'm I'm trying to send a payment to a person, but uh, like I I have a channel opened, but uh, like it keeps running out of inbound liquidity, and and even though I'm increasing the inbound li- li- liquidity, like I'm opening a new channel, nothing ha- happens. And so so what basically happens under the hood when the fees are very high and you're opening a new channel, that uh, channel capacity, uh, that minor fee is going to come out of your channel capacity. Uh, so uh, if the channel fees are very high, it becomes very difficult to open like more. Uh, extra liquid to spice in more extra liquidity for your channels. So he was just in a situation where he kept running out of inbound liquidity, and he, this is the first time that Brad actually had to learn about inbound liquidity and how, how it actually functions. And I mean, the idea for Bitcoin to be secure is that we'll have high on-chain fees without the block reward, right? So this is this, the the environment that Lightning needs to survive in. Uh, so uh, then after Brad lost the cube unrelated to 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 that um I wanted to torture him a little bit more so 
I uh, told him to send me $428 over the Lightning Network. Uh, and I just, you know, I did what people said. I just downloaded, a, you know, people talk about Phoenix Wallet, which is a non-custodial Lightning Wallet. So I just, I have a, a, a Phoenix Wallet, put some Satoshis in it, and then I asked Brad to send me some money. Of course, it doesn't work because I don't have inbound liquidity to my node. So then we have to figure out, like, how do we solve that problem? And then uh, when we noticed that Brad had sent me, like, a little bit not enough money, and then he, like, had to splice in more liquidity, like, going on-chain again and again, uh, we came to the problem that we, he couldn't even pay me, like, the exact amount that I needed because each time, like, there's this on-chain fee that gets subtracted unless he opens, like, a very big channel to me. Um, and so I, I had to, like, send him satoshi's back and it just it was just this, this 48 hour trial and an error where there's no route and uh, there is not enough inbound liquidity and there's no way for you to pay me the exact amount uh so there was this one guy who who's, goes on twitter by the name ben the carman uh he has a wallet called mutiny wallet and uh ben was like reading that thread and he was sending me like invite codes so that i could test his wallet in beta but he's like a lightning developer and like a a good faith not like me and udi trolling bitcoin like he's a he's a bitcoiner trying to build like lightning you know lightning maxi essentially and he just i think he read that thread that 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 the whole thread that i was trying to pay brad and he wrote this uh blog uh, this post on stacker news yeah he basically just yeah which just like these are all the fucking problems with Lightning, and some of them are like fundamentally unfixable. And maybe actually, Lightning is not this end user. Uh, this point has been made made before by other people, but this time it's like by a Lightning developer. And people have not now gone through a whole year of trying to use Lightning and having like forced channel closures and uh, like trying to onboard people in Af- in South Africa and haven't been successful due to the on-chain fees and. People are now like we're now at the point where they're willing to take in that message. So now you have like uh, Samson Mo from Blockstream uh, and Brad, like they're retweeting this article by uh, Ben the Carman, and everyone's just like basically admitting that this is not working. The ending of Ben Carman's Ben the Carman Ben the Carman's post was that we need covenants because covenants open up a new programmatic paradigm in, in in bitcoin that actually does get us like a, a, a covenants is a powerful upgrade for bitcoin doesn't give us it it doesn't give us mev and ethereum problems immediately but it's like a little step on the way there uh but that's a step that we have to take because we cannot we cannot stay here and be like okay Lightning sucks this much, and it's fundamentally unfixable in many ways. And everyone is going to use it custodially. And now, either you're now like an ETF person, and that's how you hold your Bitcoin, or you're right. like a person that tries to use Bitcoin, and 95% of you are using it custodially because the UX challenges of using Lightning is uh, are like um, just so harsh that you end up using it custodially. That cannot be the end state of Bitcoin. So we have to. We have to move forward. So like all these questions, like, is it worth it? Like, where are we going? We have to move away from this being the state of uh, layer two systems on. on. And, you know, and, you know the, the interesting thing, I'll, um, um, I'll, I'll 
I was gonna say I'll leave you with some, with some last words here, but I don't know if we're quite ready to wrap up yet. But um, Gregory Maxwell, the Dumbledore Bitcoin that we talked about earlier in, in the beginning of this show, uh, his 2013 forum talks, uh, forum blog posts, uh, yeah. talked about zero knowledge proofs being the ultimate way to compress blockchain transactions. And then that math, when he was discovering it, he actually went to Eli Ben Sasson's presentation in 2013 and was blown away about Starks, blown yeah. away by, by the power of Starks. Uh, and, and saying like, this was, this is obviously the way and you, there's, there's also, uh, there's also, uh, some talks about from Hal Finney, like discovering yeah. like the power of yeah. zero knowledge. Uh, so all these elders, uh, were, of Bitcoin, they were like aware of this magic of zero knowledge proof that had the ability to privatize, uh, well, privatize, make anon anonymize and make scalable large amounts of transactions without using channels. The math wasn't ready then though. The math was moon math, immature, like to not scalable enough, like proving, uh, running provers and verifiers were just too expensive at the point. Now that right. technology is actually ready for the it's been done by the ethereum and zero knowledge domain it's it's pretty much like you can yeah. you could run this on bitcoin now quite su quite successfully but during the block size wars uh it's not like uh uh greg maxwell could have said then hey let's uh like fuck a block size increase let's just do validity roll-ups or validiums or whatever the only viable solution at that point in time was let's try these channel-based solutions. And yes, there are challenges with them, with the inbound liquidity, but that is the safest solution that we have right now while preserving the block size. But the ultimate goal, like what the elders did want, were something zero-knowledge-based. And I, I think ultimately that is what where we're going to end up. And the conversation that you and I are now having is, well, how much MEV does that introduce? So that comes down to how much do you want to confine the scripting language of this these uh, zero knowledge execution environments that you ultimately enable? Going back to the block size wars, you were involved. I was not. You were there on the Reddit forums. I was not. I was live, but I wasn't there. Uh, the like, correct me if if I'm sort of misrepresenting this, but I think that one of Bitcoin's narratives thus far, and I'm really simplifying this, has been blockchains don't scale, one. And two, the question is up in the air, and I think most people lean towards no. Do we scale blockchains with more blockchains, right? And this is something that Ethereum dove into, right? After they figured out that sharding is actually really hard, <laughs> They said, okay, we're going to go with this, this roll-up centric roadmap. We're going to change the name a little bit to, to dank sharding. So we still have the sharding in there. But in reality, we're going with this roll-up centric roadmap, right? And I, I mean, me not, not excessively technical, I'm still looking at this and I'm saying, okay, you know, we can optimize these roll-ups that we still run into the same problems in many ways that we do with layer one blockchains, right? And and right now, as you said, as you mentioned earlier, with, with a lot of these Ethereum L2s, I mean, you still need uh, to come to consensus on blocks and how blocks are ordered. Ironically, and I troll out this a good bit, the way you end up sequencing those blocks or the 
the long-term vision or one of the visions for how you sequence those blocks is another blockchain, right? Shared sequencers or some variation of this. So I think that, you know, I'm probably somewhere in the middle and also not that my opinion really matters, but I, I do, I'm, I'm curious, like what, what is to you, I mean, is, is the ZK rollup, is this the end game, right? And then what you were saying, like the, the degree of expressivity, I think is very important, right? Because this is like, that is when you introduce how much can you extract? You know, uh, how how centralized can this get? I still, I mean, I still, it's not immediately clear to me um, how you decentralize L2s. I think that like Ethereum is still contending with this. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll let you go ahead. I'm, I'm, these are just questions that are, I think, still coming to a lot of people's minds. Yeah. Um, I actually like, uh, like the um, the idea that... You have a set of sequencers. I'm, t- I'm talking now about the MEV problem and the expressive, uh, expressiveness problem. I like the model where, and maybe this is naive, maybe it's not going to work out, uh, but I, I currently like this model. Uh, you have a set of sequencers that uh, are expected by the uh, roll-up token holders. And now I'm saying token holders, not necessarily a fee token, uh, like not the, necessarily the gas token, just a governance token. Um, the sequencers are uh, allowed by just social, um, a social, um, how do you say, code between uh, them the, by the to- by the token holders and the sequencers. They're allowed to like extract be- benign MEV and transaction fees. So benign MEV is like you get the first pick to liquidate uh, a vault uh, CDP. Maker Vault that is needs to be liquidated and 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 take the, the fees from that. Something that you actually do want to happen as soon as possible. So you want people to sort of rush and uh, rush and do that. And arbitrage also like making the the prices correct between different AMMs is, just gives better prices for everyone. That is also like benign MEV. Uh, so we let them do that, but uh, we don't uh, let them engage in uh, like malicious um, malicious types of MEV where maybe they're they're uh, front-running people, sandwiching, back-running people in a negative way, giving people worse prices. And the community has the ability to uh, throw out sequencers that they don't like and just install new sequencers that they do like. Maybe that model works. Uh, I don't know. So then maybe you can have a roll-up with expressivity uh, and there is MEV in the system, but if they don't engage in the way that uh, you want them to, then you can perhaps oust them. I know that doesn't maybe necessarily answer your question about the OFAC censoring stuff. Like maybe that's not necessarily, but maybe you can throw the sequencers out if they are OFAC censoring too. Maybe that's, maybe that's a, but maybe then the, all the token holders become then liable for that. We have seen other DAOs like uh, get in legal trouble for. Uh, so it's not it's not a completely solved problem, but I think that's yeah. like a d- direction that we can explore. Uh, whether or not like zk rollups are the end goal, I think. I mean, what what would would be the other other alternative in your your view? I think is that is that like a completely monolithic uh, chain like Solana or like uh, Bitcoin Cash, big block chain well everything's like super monolithic i admire solana but for reasons that probably solana people don't want me to admire solana but i i I think i am more okay with some of this stuff not existing on bitcoin that that's probably honestly if i could synthesize this down 
to where you and I may may disagree just just fundamentally. I'm okay using Ethereum. I'm okay using Solana. Like to me, if you know, there's there's trade-off models, whatever sort of buzzwords you want to throw in there, you know, in terms of are you using this for your financial activity versus this? Like to me, it's okay if we have this. Mm-hmm. And and I, and mm-hmm. in many ways, I'm I'm more dogmatic about Bitcoin, you know? I'm like more protective of it because and 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 this is like me being quite serious right now. I honestly believe that Bitcoin is probably our best chance at creating a decentralized money. Now, a decentralized financial system, conversely, I don't know that this is exactly the same. I would actually probably argue that a decentralized financial system with this rich statefulness and these all these interacting contracts and and all these people, you know, who who may have an edge or whatever, like maybe this opens up a different sort of space. Um, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I don't have strong conviction one way or another. I would say that I I think like CTV, from what I understand about it, it it's encouraging, you know, and I'm encouraged that people are, it's for, I don't know if you probably have a better definition, just check template, verify. This is a covenant proposal that, you know, it, there's some consensus around. It's quite interesting to see the discussions as to what actually qualifies as consensus. But a lot of the people that maybe I respect right now are are, are pretty keen on this and, you know, I think it opens up, you know, you were talking about the the inbound liquidity problem and some of these issues with lightning. There are some improvements we can make, right? Like with... Yeah, no, but C- CTV, <laughs> uh, CTV does not solve like the... It, 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 uh, um, CTV can uh, help with some of the interactivity issues with lightning so that you, you don't need to necessarily be online to receive a payment and stuff like that. Even even to make that part good, uh, you may need other op- codes as well. Like I think CTV only does this with like the help of check for, check uh, check from Stack or um, yeah. might be another one uh, that is needed for it. But so CT- CTV is not going to get you away from the inbound liquidity problem. All channel based system, you you would have to go towards something like Arc. Uh, right. To... But but CTV could maybe get us could maybe get us close to arc right or it needs it needs check say from stack as well is that correct or, or one of these others yeah. but um do you want to take the controversial uh, well do, do you want to take the position that arc is now the non-custodial way that you want to try transact with bitcoin no because you i'm still not have... taking any positions <laughs> oh, okay. no so 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 i'm i'm at the camp where like arc uh is interesting but it's not the um Arc only is only makes sense if you uh, are in a world where you believe that the layer one that you're working on is exactly like Bitcoin, and then maybe something like CTV or APO on top of it. But that's like a very arbitrary definition of what you want from your base layer. You can go a little bit further and uh, create, you know, n- some type of non-custodial, trustless, like even even drive chains. In my opinion, would be uh, probably a better. Dr- trade-off here. Um, I mean, ultimately, the question comes down to how do you... So yes, we. I think we we're in full agreement and I've been on like multiple podcasts saying this before that I absolutely love that Ethereum and Bitcoin are different beasts. Like um, it's good that they're very different. They won't fail for the same reasons. That's very like creates resiliency for crypto. It's good that these are in isolation. Very, very important. But... We do need 
a second layer on Bitcoin that is non-custodial and has good UX, in my opinion. Well, that, that, that is something that we need. My, one of my theories for how to solve, to solve that, to sort of, um, to sort of uh, uh, stroke your multi-chain vision that you, that you seem to like, <laughs> is, is uh, there were some attempts uh, from uh, Matt Luongo and James Press, which uh, creating yes. a uh, <laughs> TBTC, like a, a synthetic form of Bitcoin yeah. that was backed by an, appro- uh, an over-collateralized amount of uh, Ether on the Ether chain. But that turned out to be like not efficient because then you, now you don't have an inbound liquidity problem, but you have an over-collateralization problem that sort of makes it uh, in, 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 inefficient in its own way. Um, so, I mean, but I was like, okay, you know, it's not the users though. The difference here with with TBTC versus lightning is not, is that you as a user just holding the TBTC, you don't have to care about who actually collateralized this and what's their economic model is and and, and why. So I was actually, I have, I had a, I was doing like a, a, an experiment. I think I was like one of the first users of ZK sync where I put TBTC inside ZK Sync, and I was sending it around doing the lightning torch experiment and tons of people participated. We had like a long list of all the people that had held the amount of Bitcoin, uh, to- the, the TBTC token that was running around in this Ethereum rollup. So like maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe uh, something like Ethereum running an SPV client or something for Bitcoin, maybe other chains can become the second layer of Bitcoin and Bitcoin doesn't have to become that. But I still think that you know something like drive chains or something like uh, a, a very constrained zk rollup or even actually a fully fledged zk rollup, as long as we get sort of the sequencing of the data uh, confined, uh, so that the only result that you get are like fee spikes on on on, on the layer one uh, at worst. Um, I think that those trade offs is what gets us closest to workable, non-custodial wallets for Bitcoin. Uh, and I, I think that we, we don't have that much time. Like um, not far from now, you know, the Bitcoin ecosystem is, is going to start, it's going to ossify around a specific set of trade-offs that then becomes the ones that we get to work with. And if those that set of trade-offs doesn't give us uh a network that can provide non-custodial wallets, then that then you know how how are we going to do it? I mean, you know, the one, one side of the one one position that one might take, one that Uri takes sometimes, is to say, well, fuck it then, you'll own your your own you will own your Bitcoin non-custodially in a hardware wallet or whatever. That's where you will own ninety percent of it. And then you take ten percent and you'll put it into like some multi-sig gizmo over collateralized or not, just like pretty safe. And the only um, the only money that you lose on it is like what you lose, what you currently have on your debit card, for example. Right. Uh, and uh, you lose all that, but you still have 90% of your savings. So like that's the, that's the most charitable uh, view. I Wait, still see he takes that view? Uh, he, he has done that many, many times when we've been arguing about this years before. Um, so would I, you say that, would you say that Udi is more on the side of constraining perhaps the, 
expressivity of L2s and and the innovations we build out from here or, or? no i would say that udi at the moment uh knows <laughs> that uh udi right now knows that um before we can even have a conversation around how constrained these layer twos uh are going to be we're going to have to shake up and create more chaos in the bitcoin chain until some change happens and whether or not you know that's people saying oh, fuck the wizards let's do let's do the most uh constrained covenant that we can think of to just like marginally improve lightning in some way that is still an improvement but uh so udi uh like his his opinion is not that we're going to ossify here and just go with like that's that's the that's the that's if we lose and yeah. bitcoin ossifies that's that's how we'll use bitcoin then but that will be like um the worst failure mode but uh, i mean i guess the upshoot or the the uh Silver lining here is that maybe that isn't like a disaster. You don't have to give up on Bitcoin as many Ethereans have done, like just right. because you'll keep ninety percent in cold storage and ten percent or whatever in in. Um, um, yeah, but even then, like even even if even 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 if you have ninety percent of your funds in cold storage and ten percent, where do you keep that other ten percent in Lightning? Where the user experience fucking sucks. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> we still yeah. need. We still got to solve for for that because the fees then are going to be very high on the on the mainnet, right? So we still right. we still need some. Yeah, I I keep coming back to the same word. We need a better non custodial wallet yeah. for for Bitcoin, and we the only way to get there is to break the culture that currently. But actually, yeah. honestly, right now, I think that kind of our our work is like there's going to be a, a long journey now of. Um, changes happening in Bitcoin in various ways over the next couple of years. But the thing that we were trying to crush, which was this ossification camp, most of them are now talking about like, how do we fork out ordinals? So they're not even about ossification anymore. Yeah. I think that we, the, I think that we've actually, you know, I'm not angry anymore. I'm, I'm not like fired up or anything <laughs> anymore because I think that, you know, just, just go and read like Samson Moe's, uh, last uh, post where he's talking about the solution for Bitcoin. Obviously, we're just going to run Lightning on Liquid. And Brad Mills is like retweeting this blog post by Ben DeCarman about how Lightning is un fundamentally like broken. I think it's been admitted now that Lightning is not like we. This is no longer something that we have to stick in people's faces. Yeah, I think like the war, the the the, the important part of the war that we all sort of agree and admit that. We got to build a better uh, second layer wallet for Bitcoin. I think that there's consensus. There's maybe some people that aren't talking about it, but I feel like we kind of we kind of got there now in the end as a Bitcoin community, and we're gonna keep pushing that forward. Uh, but oh, but I believe the, you. <laughs> yeah, but the the uh, I'm not I'm not like before before this year like it was. It felt like we we had to climb like Mount Everest and come back, uh, like bring a whole family up to Mount Everest and then and then come back. and and it feels like we're on our way down from the mountain now and it's the sun is rising and yeah. we're excited for what's to come. Yeah, I, I'm. I think that I'm encouraged. I'm always going to be a bit cynical, um, but I as a general statement, I think that. You guys are doing really good work. Um, let me ask you one more question. Uh, we and we sort of touched on this, but I, I, I maybe want to hear like a more comprehensive 
uh, breakdown. You were, you wrote this article, right? Right, right around the merge. And you effectively said, look, we have to take a stand that if we start seeing censorship in what you were saying, if we see, if we start seeing, uh, attesters not attesting to OFAC blocks, you know, like, right, exactly. If we start seeing this, um, we're going to have to take a stand. And, but, but more importantly here, I think you were one who sort of, I remember you had a debate with Justin Bonds uh, about two years ago. I've, I've done my research. I've listened to a lot of your podcasts. And you took the side of proof of work. Um, and he took the side of proof of stake. And you were sort of of the opinion, look, we need both of these systems, right? Like the, we, it's the, uh, what is it? The, the octopus, the, the tentacles or the, yeah, the, the, the octopus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the octopus. And I said... Uh, Captain the, Ahab. Yeah, the, the, the octopus and the the gun with one bullet in it. But I said it incorrectly then. But uh, what I meant was, yeah, a revolver. Yeah, I said a revolver with, with one gun in it. But obviously, I meant a revolver with one bullet in it. So Bitcoin is the revolver. It has one bullet in it. Mm-hmm. It's like taking a very simple like proof of work, no smart contracts. No, we're going to go kill an enemy. We have a gun and a bullet. We're going to go and shoot the guy in the head. But what if uh, the enemy is not that? What if it's a different kind of enemy and you're right. underwater now facing this enemy? Uh, then maybe you want an octopus. And this uh, Ethereum is my octopus. And then like maybe maybe the octopus is, is better uh, to fight with underwater. And because we don't know what the ultimate... Like we don't know if the how the state... I mean, ultimately it's the state that we're fighting in my opinion. Uh, we don't know if if the state is an enemy that lives above water or beneath water, uh, where they're going to be the hardest for us to fight. Like, is it the one that is going to say that Bitcoin is environmentally unfriendly? Or is it the one that is going to say that Ethereum has a bunch of of, uh, uh, unregistered securities and illegal casinos, uh, and they come at us at the MEV, uh, like choke us at the MEV uh, transaction building choke points? Like we don't know where exactly these blockchains are going to fail, but uh, it's very good that we have two very distinct ones. Uh, that yeah. said, though, uh, so that said, though, I do want the gun to have a non-custodial wallet with a good user experience. <laughs> yes, yes, okay, 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 yes, uh, okay. Thank you for for elaborating on that. My, here's my question. Now it's been how long has it been since the merge? What is I, I don't know. Well, well over a year, right? Uh, one and a half year or something. Okay, like yeah. So what is your general view on how Ethereum's doing? How uh, the roll-up roadmap, you know, some of this interest around Solana, especially recently, you know, like sort of this this pragmatic approach. I don't know. What what are what are your views on since let's call it since the merge, since the since the transition to proof of stake? Um, are you optimistic? Like what do you see as the biggest, you know, choke points or whatever? Yeah. Mm, yeah, so this is uh, some of these things are hard to say. Uh, it was, I was hoping um, I was going to give you a yeah. tough one here. Um, like in the same, you know, I used to be, you know, I I was so bullish on Lightning, you know, when it when it came out and when when the white paper came out, and I you know, I ran one of the first five hundred nodes, and I was like, yeah, you know, I, I was telling telling people, well, I, I will. Uh, lock up some funds in a wallet, you know, just so that I can pay, uh, so that I can get paid. You know, I, I won't mind like having my liquidity locked up in a, 
in in a channel. Um, actually, that's not the, the problem. The problem is that you need inbound liquidity from someone else. You can't actually give it to yourself with your own liquidity. Um, but but I have you know. So after being a big fan of Lightning, then a couple of years came, and then I started to see that maybe I was the bad guy. Maybe I was the one that wasn't like listening to the people that said that this was an overly complex system. And I'm really afraid, desperately afraid that I've done the same mistake with rollups that, you know, the, the rollups made so much sense when we were, when they were just like these trustless side chains to Ethereum uh, like, why wouldn't that be awesome? Like new execution environments, new like types of uh, smart contract languages uh, and the, that you could use. Completely different privacy characteristics. Fucking awesome, right? Uh, but then, you know, of course, you're going to want tokens for these. I'm not actually against tokens. Like I mentioned in my previous example, having token holders, having the ability to sort of vote out bad sequencers, that is good, like so that you have some type of governance functions. Uh, in inside the rollup, because I mean, ex- at least in a in a zk rollup, the you can't do anything bad. You can only like, you have some validators that can only do good things. You can replace them with other valid- validators that can go do do good things. That's there's no real danger here that you know this governance capture is going to like destroy the system by putting bad validators there. They can't, they can't they still can't do anything bad. Problem though, I think, is that well. If you have a new blockchain and you have a new token, that's now completely its own blockchain. And there are going to be ecosystems <laughs> over there and there's going to be ecosystems over there. And, um, you know, some of, the, some of the smarter people that I know on like cross rollup uh, interactions like Georgios uh, yes. has been telling me that, oh, it's going to get solved. I actually have a, I have a call with... Um, Mihailo from Polygon, he wants to introduce me to his Polygon CDK, like how it works. I think that the solution that they have is some type of, well, you can have a bunch of rollups, but if they all use the same sequencer, like a shared sequencer, then the problem of like liquidity transferring between the rollups is actually solved. Uh, So that is something that I'm still going to like have to investigate. I hope that there's something promising there. Um, like the shared sequencers without like turning it, turning uh, the whole of the system into a single blockchain in some way. Like I don't, I don't know what the like the trade-off is here of, of doing that. Um, so so I I'm I'm at the place now where, yeah, um, I I really I was really really bullish bullish on rollups before some of these like uh, composability issues. That you know, I hand waved in the same way I did with inbound liquidity for Lightning. It's coming back up, and it's like, you know, the the dildo of consequences that is not lubed <laughs> rears its head once again. Um, uh, I'm not as fearful for rollups as I am currently for for Lightning with the in, with the uh, the issues that Lightning has faced. But it's because I've had more time, like wrestling with the the uh the, the challenges of, of um uh of lightning than, than i've had with, with world up so we haven't we haven't seen the end and there's also like there's stuff that is happening with like recursive zero knowledge proofs so you can have like 
uh, the, what Vitalik calls the proof of proof of proofs. So you sort of have um, zero knowledge systems that can all compile down to other zero knowledge proofs, and like you have a root proof uh, that supposedly solves some of the composability issues and then cross uh, cross system liquidity issues. Frankly, my answer is I don't know uh, if the end if the end final state of rollups is going to be one that is going to have a user experience that is going to be sufficient. But what I do know, uh, well, I, I know two things. I know number one, if you won't have a, if you won't, if you say, well, fuck it, we can't do it with these uh, rollup systems and the cross rollup, um, like the cross rollup communication is not going to work. You can still get much further with like having instead of having Solana, you put the Solana virtual machine and you put it on a data availability layer. Uh, you're still going to reach better scale with that system than just Solana as a single monolithic system. So like a single rollup with a, a disconnected data availability layer that focuses only on that, I still think is like superior to a monolithic chain. So um, I wouldn't say like, let's all go home. This rollup mission is a, a clusterfuck. I still think that... that uh, rollups are less of a clusterfuck than sharding. Uh, the, the original sharding plants were, uh, but um, yeah. there is something better than fully monolithic. Also, yeah, that that makes sense. Okay, let me just add one. Okay, uh, let me. Can I just ask you one last question quickly? Um, do you wonder if Ethereum is going to be kind of this chain that just ultimately? accepts proofs from all of these from all of these rollups. Do you sort of wonder why the L1 is still touring complete? Like I'm 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 being reductive here, but you see what I'm saying. No, it's sort no, of, no, if no, we, no. Yeah. It's a completely valid question. Uh, it's the right question. And actually this is this is the case that I make like for Bitcoiners. Ethereum um has a fundamental architectural uh you know mistake or flaw in the sense that it has this uh uh the EVM which is sort of hostile to be zero knowledge proven even though it's getting better you know you have these applied cryptographers that just keep making these insane improvements all the time so it just keeps getting better but no, what you do want at the base layer is uh, an environment that is only designed to uh, process zero knowledge proofs. So, I mean, this this is not controversial. Vitalik says has said it himself in private conversations that he, I think, he wishes that uh, Cairo. I don't know if it's so. Th this is like a, maybe a six month old opinion of his that Cairo uh, would be better as the uh, native. Um, execution environment and language for Ethereum yeah. than Solidity. So yeah. this is something that we as Bitcoiners can sort of learn from that, okay, well, they fucked up. Uh, now they have this Solidity garbage, EVM garbage on their layer one. We could just have a very, um, we could just have a system for verifying zero knowledge proofs in a constrained way. Uh, and it would be a much better uh, way to design the system. Yeah. Well, Eric, thank you so much. Thanks again so much for being my first guest ever. We'll see if I have any career in podcasting. I had a I thought it was I thought it was great. Um, I really do appreciate it.
Yeah, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but uh, I liked it. And good luck to the rest of your good, good luck to the rest of your show. Yeah. Nice meeting you, Thank Gord. You. Yeah, right, good to meet you too. All right, bye bye.